Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yep, they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person too when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? Wants to turn me into something else. Oh no. A fly. Got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. Could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Help me, please, help me. Yes, into my veins. All right, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, yeah, that trailer makes it abundantly clear that it's not, as we were saying before we started, it's not a comedy. Um, yeah. Despite the Brooks film, uh, does and people literally like like they were wearing these headbands with like you know little springs on top with the fly at the end of the the thing just like dangling there waiting for this comedy. And I remember like the local news interviewing people before they went in and after they came out and, you know, at the end of they're like, Oh, this is going to be great. Bill Brooks is so funny. I can't wait to see this movie. And they come out like, that was disgusting. And, and I just, <laughs> the original like screening, I guess, um, they had a scene. I watched it last night. They had a scene where they, uh, he throws a monkey and a cat into the, uh, telepods and he tries mm. to find a monkey cat creature. 
to like see if it, the gene splicer works. And like um, somebody threw up in the theater when they when they watched that, and like there's just like vomit in the theater and stuff. And they were like, "All right, well, we got to take that part of it out." <laughs> Do you think if they if they had combined the uh, woman and man, uh, what would have happened? Like, I feel like I we 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 kind of you know we never got to see that. It would be it would be really funny if they combined the woman and man, and there was another fly in one of the like it hadn't left or something like. So then they combine it with another fly, and then it's another like. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. I think it would have been fucked up, though. <laughs> you kind of get an idea what it might have been with The Fly 2, which which I think is is a uh, very underrated film. Um, it, it's it's made in Canada and has like none of the uh, the charm that this movie has. But it's got Eric Stoltz. So, you know, there's that. Um, and it, it's uh, a decent sequel for, uh, you know, what it what it is. Uh, low budget sequel. But um, that one, he vomits on a guy's face and you could see it melt off. So that's cool. <laughs> um, I should introduce us, though. I am Forrest Miller, host of Movie Night Extravaganza. I am joined by J. Andrew uh, Brundle Superfly World. Um, I'm glad I said that correctly. I had trouble say it, like, saying it really fast earlier. Uh, <laughs> the Brundle Fly is a tough <laughs> word to say. You know, illustrator, artist, fly, all of, all of those things. And of course, we're joined by Karthik. Uh, you know, he has a, a Substack, Alien Encounters. You know, kind of. Um, I mean, I guess this isn't really an alien as much as a teleportation movie, but it kind of falls, I think, along a similar, a similar genre. Um, uh, towards the end, I have a. Wow, I'm doing the Jeff Goldblum. Um, um, uh, uh, listen. <laughs> towards the end, I have a, a clip of Cronenberg um, where he's talking about how he believes that uh, they ripped off the idea for Alien from uh, Scanners, and he goes mm. on a whole. Or maybe not. I don't. It might have been a different movie that he made, but he has a whole diatribe about it that I found. Yeah, um, I don't think it was Scanners because Scanners, I think, was '82. Uh, so it might have been like The Brood. He has a. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember which movie it was, but um, there's a whole thing where he's talking about it and he's bitching during a fly. It's like during the premiere of uh, The Fly in, in like Toronto or something. He's introducing it. Um, Did he also bitch about this? Uh, I mean, Hollow Hollow Man ripping from this movie. Because I feel like this this movie was pretty similar to how Hollow Man with uh, Kevin Bacon turned out as well. Yeah, but but Hollow Man is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, this movie is based on both a short story and I mean the Vincent Price the Vincent Price movie. Um, so this movie is like a remake of a of a short story of a of a remake. Like you know what I mean? Like so it's like kind of whatever. Um, I have a I have a clip though that I wanted to start with which is uh, Jeff Goldblum talking about improvising. Hmm. And I think that this is, I mean, this will probably segue us into a weird place just talking about his performance in general, but um, I thought this was a, a funny clip. It's actually fucking hilarious. What he wanted to do. Yeah, and what did I do? Did I drink coffee? Was I drinking a little coffee to help myself? Maybe. I had weight, you know, I was lifting weights and stuff. I wanted to be, I knew I was going to be a little exposed in that. So I wanted to be just vain, vanity wise. And I knew that the story said that I was supposed to be a kind of a intellectual scientist, indoorsy type. And then um, we gather that the fly genes have uh, started to pump me up. So I was lifting weights. And so I take them on the set. That's right. Have a little coffee and before action, do a couple of things. So I was full of uh, juice, you know, <laughs> and I was excited. It was a very exciting thing. I dug the whole idea and, um, and uh, sexually supercharged and stuff and dug the whole idea and uh, started to was very mentally uh, provoked and stimulated, you know, and he said, he gave me a 
chance to see some speeches, although his writing is also beautiful. There were some speeches uh, in part and then dot, dot, dot. And I went, geez, as I often do, what if we, I wonder what happens after the dot, 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 whether we shoot or not, or even if we keep shooting, da, da, da. and there's one speech, you know, where I have just gone through and we show up at the cafe and she's alarmed because I'm putting lots of sugar in as I'm, uh, you know, running on riffing and uh, about uh, it's my exciting, whatever, uh, you know, epiphanies. <laughs> It's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why, and I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart out of my atom and put back together again, why it's like coffee being put through a filter, it's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me, it's cleansed me, and I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years that I've been obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? You know, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen, and not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individual. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true. I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter, I mean, what an accomplishment. But... What have I really done, though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. And that's half of it was written, half of it the night before. I kind of, yeah, that's all, that's all mine. Fun fact, that wasn't actually uh, sugar being put into the coffee, but was in fact cocaine. <laughs> yeah, see, my, my whole thing about this is that I feel like his acting is the first half of the movie when he's kind of a, a talking slow and he's, you know, mm -hmm -hmm. Making it slow with her. And then when he actually goes into fly mode, he's like, blah, 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 blah. like when he goes into that whole thing and he's like, he's like, sugar, sugar, come on, waiter. Like, I feel like that's regular Jeff Goldblum at his regular speed. So I think, yeah. that, <laughs> so I think it's interesting that this movie uh, turns him into like, I don't know, like it starts with him kind of acting because he's very, like, he's very methodical about things. He has his shirts, which is the Einstein thing. Um, there's the shirts in the closet. They're all the same shirt. He does the same thing every day. You know, Jeff Goldblum wouldn't be doing that. Like Jeff Goldblum would be out doing crazy things. Like he'd be doing exactly what he's doing as the fly in the first couple. <laughs> Did you notice that the the costume that he wears, like the, the suit, the three piece suit, um, and the shirt and the tie and uh, the pants that he wears is like literally the exact thing that Mr. Bean wears in all his. Uh, it, that's Mr. Bean's iconic look as well. So I wonder if like Mr. Bean modeled it off of the fly. I wouldn't be surprised. I, yo, I would love to see a Mr. Bean remake of The Fly where he's trying to put the thing together and then he accidentally like trips into the like, <laughs> he trips into the tele teleport or whatever and he like turns himself into like half man, half baboon or whatever and like <laughs> Yeah, you don't he, he doesn't even have to do that. I think it's going to be funny just like him going through the motions. Uh, but also, it's kind of, uh, I felt like, you know, to your point, uh, I think this movie utilized Jeff Goldblum unlike any other movie that I've seen. I mean, he's usually Jeff Goldblum in every movie, but this seemed like it was a movie that was made for him in a way. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the other movie I think that we've watched that kind of does something similar, but he's not a main character in it, is um is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I think he does mm-hmm. a good job kind of just being like the conspiracy adult friend that's like trying to talk through everything. But like Buckaroo really Banta, he kind of does the same thing, but he has such a small part in that movie. Like, yeah. You almost forget because the movie's just so weird and his weirdness just blends in with the rest of the movie. <laughs> Even yeah, if he is dressed like a fluorescent cowboy. <laughs> Yo, it was such a it was such a uh, a nice moment when Nathan Robinson was like was like I didn't get this movie at all and I was like oh my god thank God someone smarter than me does not understand this movie. <laughs> but this was easy to follow. I think the fly was like uh, one of the things that really struck out. Um, sorry, uh, stood out for me was uh, how proper a movie it was like in the way that it was framed, in the way that it moved, like the the motion was the the movement was like very steady. And uh, Cronenberg like builds it up like kind of almost like it's like a drama movie. It doesn't feel like a psychological thriller or anything like that. I mean, kind of s- just like yeah. Uh, have you seen any other Cronenberg films? Yeah, yeah. I've seen the I've seen Eastern Promises. Okay. Um, I've seen the History of Violence. Uh, I've seen parts of Crash. Uh, I haven't seen the whole thing. Which but James Spader is the four it, movies yeah. that I said to my wife that everybody's seen of Cronenberg. Uh, yeah. Um, but like like Dead Zone, which which came out before this, or um, Scan- Scanners is interesting. Like like Scanners is a flawed master, like like one of those flawed movies that you can really enjoy, but like it's not, it's not, you know, it's it's like there's too much wrong with it to make it a classic, but it's too fascinating to not to not admire. Um, and, and, uh, but like like if you watch Dead Zone for for example, uh, for instance. It's also very methodical how, how it's made. And it's got, you know, probably my favorite Martin Sheen performance in it. Uh, so, so like, you know, it's, uh, and Martin Sheen is every bit as unhinged as uh, Jeff Goldblum is in this movie. See, but the, the thing about this movie that makes it interesting is that he doesn't start off unhinged. He starts off like a little right. Asperger's, I would say, like, you know, like just kind of keeping to him. I mean, which goes along with the Einstein. Ne- neither does Martin Sheen. He starts off as being basically playing Jeb Bartlett and then ends up becoming you know, this, this completely insane person. It's, it's great. <laughs> you mean Jed Bartlett. There we go. Yeah, no, he, he actually, he actually is running for president in the movie. It's, it's like oh. a prequel to, uh, it's the prequel I want to, uh, the West Wing. <laughs> so, but, but it's, uh, but, so, but it's also cool that like, uh, you kind of need, uh, the, the movie to be steady paced because you have to really follow what's going on. Um, and like, you know, especially in sci- sci-fi kind of movies, you, you you tend to get like, you know, the treatment gets a little too sci-fi uh, and you kind of can. I mean, I remember watching, um, I mean, at that point, I was probably like too young for it anyway. But like at the time I was watching Minority Report probably in my teens. And I thought that like a lot of the, you know, the, the terminology and the and the kind of concepts that were being established was not really coming across to me as clearly. But I feel like in this, there's no way there's going to be any confusion about what this fellow is doing, even before he fully reveals it. You know, there's like two yeah. parts and he's going from one to the other. It's like a very neat kind of setup. Which kind of, it kind of makes me laugh. And I don't know why this is, but you know, uh, Jeff Goldman does, does those um, apartment.com commercials. Yeah. So, like, so in, it sounds like it's the beginning of one of those commercials where he's like, I'm working on something that will change the world and human life as we know it. And I'm like, it's apartment. It's apartment.com. Isn't it? like, <laughs> <laughs> it's a rental service. And you know, you're you're really you're really gonna want this one, um, no. But I I my Elon Musk comparison right that I made with it. Um, when she says, uh, so Ronnie Veronica is uh, Gina Davis's character, and she says, 
um, she's asking him about like, uh, oh, is he built all this alone? He says, I don't really do it alone. I'm really a system ma systems management man. I farm bits and pieces out to guys who are much more brilliant than I am. I say, build me a laser here. Design me a molecular analyzer that. And they just do it. And, and I stick them together. And none of them really knows what the project is. Um, and that kind of is the thing that reminded me of Elon Musk. You know what I mean? It's not that he's an engineer in the sense of like he's building these things from hand and he knows how to do all of that. He's kind of a systems manager that's saying, well, I, I like this idea. I'm building this project. I want to find a bunch of engineers that can actually put it together and then I'll put together the uh, actual final form of it. Yeah, but no, Elon Musk is actually the guy behind Jeff Goldblum that you meet in the sequel that that's getting all the credit for, um, you know, the work that he does. Yeah, well, this this I guess it's also uh, my... My thoughts on this, my thoughts on this were um, kind of, uh, were kind of the, the the scene where he where he accidentally kills the, the fucking baboon and turns it into like a weird Cronenberg creature, like the fact that Elon Musk had just like yeah, Neuralink genocided genocided uh, eighteen monkeys like two weeks before I, I just watched this, kind of I was like oh fuck. <laughs> Wait, wait. Yeah, he's actually kind of nice to the monkey. I mean, uh, the the baboon that he actually ends up successfully teleporting, it kind of almost becomes his friend. I was really surprised to see him like actually handle the monkey so well. Yeah, well, uh, that, that I, monkey apparently was a nightmare on set. Oh, uh, wow. But I mean, in, in what I'm well, saying... The cameras are rolling. That monkey was a professional. In, in the deleted scene, like there's a deleted sequence they took out where he isn't so nice to the monkey. He fuses it with a cat and then beats it to death, death with a hammer. So... Speaking of monkeys and cats, there's Audrey. <laughs> um, yeah, so so going on with uh, the Jeff Goldblum performance while I kick Audrey out of this room, because um, <laughs> she's going wild. Maybe she's kicking herself out. All right, cool. Um, <laughs> bye. Um, <laughs> um, so this is this is a continuation of this. I watched way too many clips of. I, so I I used to have like a, a man crush on Jeff Goldblum and he just did so many like th these weird things where he would do like the they're just talking through different things and like so I used to watch so many Jeff Goldblum clips so I kind of got transfixed into this um I found like a, a six part making of the Fly uh, series so I started watching that last night and it just Jeff Goldblum was like uh, talking through his entire preparation for his performance and I was like oh shit like I'm gonna watch this and it ended up being like an hour long <laughs> but I found the clips that I wanted to grab from this so um this is jeff goldblum um preparing to you know be the 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 final well not final formation of the fly but like you know one of them <laughs> the one that grabs her this, this is him preparing to go out of the wall that uh she's in trying to get an abortion and this is a, a scene where he's he's talking through his performance and how he prepared for it and i guess half of it is a half of it is a stunt double and half of it was a uh jeff goldblum I remember how that came about, by the way, the uh, physicalization of the more advanced stages. Now, you know, I was supercharged in the little middle section after I after I go through. But once I started to deteriorate and I get kind of more fly-like, those kind of movement, <laughs> you know, I'd prepared. I'm nothing if not conscientious. And from the first moment I got this part, I was working on it. And Gene and I were working on it together. That was very nice that we could kind of sculpt things together and, and work on things. Oh, 
there was one costume and film test where I put on the whole thing, advanced thing once and took some you know, test shots. But that was it until the first day when we had to shoot a scene in that period. And I think the first thing that we shot was um, when I smashed through that fake glass brick wall. Action. You know, I thought, how do I, what am I going to do? I hadn't really pra practiced. So I remember that day as I got it on, I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, fly, you know, that fly, I'd send scamper around. I, Start to do the, that that kind of stuff, you know, like a chick, you know, chicken kind of, you know, that that, that kind of stuff, and uh, incorporated a little of that with uh, that kind of. Um, I thought I, I I thought I was probably in physical pain in some way. I'm sure I'd gotten a little more specific around then what what hurts and why does it hurts and things are kind of emerging and trying to break through and my two different genetic selves are struggling with each other and it's probably painful, physically painful. That's not to mention that I'm emotionally frustrated and in suffering, you know, so it's, I kind of found that fine. After working hard, it sort of fertilized the ground where I finally could make those discoveries when we did it. And it worked out okay. I, li I like what we came up with. The baby might be... All that's left of the real me. Please don't kill me. We were really kind of uh, just making it up on the spot. I was really, well, I've got all this stuff going on. Let me, let's roll and we'll see. I wasn't, you know, hadn't built any pauses or into the thing, just kind of did it different every time and but enjoyed it. Really kind of felt like I was in a groove of some some kind, you know. Yeah, so so we should say at the beginning of, of we should have said at the beginning of this, I guess, right? Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum are are together at this point. They're a couple. Um, in real life, as well as, I mean, obviously, you know, mm. the movie. So he gets cast, and there's a funny story um, that we can get into later about how, like, Jeff Goldblum was kind of the last person that uh, they thought of because they wanted someone who could put on the prosthetics. And obviously his face is kind of too elongated, and so they wanted someone with a very, like, narrow face. And, I, and you don't usually hear, uh, I feel like you don't usually hear, you know, uh, special effects people talking that way, right? Like, they're like, oh, well, he, you know, you put on the prosthetics and that's how it is. And then they tell you about how they built the prosthetics. But they really did a lot of thinking into what the person would have to um, kind of their, their facial features would have to look like in order to make this work. They basically and, would have to look like Doug Jones. Yeah. Oh, which is why he's so successful. Um, Doug, Doug Jones is like the guy for uh, makeup special effects for, for many years. He's uh, currently playing. Um, oh, crap. Uh, the first officer on uh, Star Trek Discovery. Um, he's, he's this weird alien guy, Saru. Saru. He, he's he's uh, fantastic. He was in. Um, he he was the body of the Silver Surfer in um, 
<clears throat> that terrible Fantastic Four movie. He was uh, yeah, yeah, he was the the creature with the eyes in uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, oh yeah. You know, oh wow. Just, yeah. Very, you know, very physical. Um, he is uh, the Silence episode of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which uh, honestly, like one of the best episodes of the show. If you if you watch one All episode, right, well, so so they wanted that that kind yeah. of person that in prosthetics, but they wanted an A list kind of actor, right? Because at the time, uh, you know, Doug Jones will never be an A list uh, actor. Sorry, I love the man, but no. <laughs> All right, Andy, you've explained. <laughs> Let me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to lead us into a conversation. Here. All right. Um, no, what so about Doug Jones? Apparently, out, like they tested out like 150 actors or something. Like they tested out pretty much every lead actor they possibly could because at the time, David Cronenberg is the biggest kind of horror, uh, horror science fiction like monster, like this genre, right? He's the biggest director of that genre. So they kind of had unlimited access to people. So Mel Brooks, which makes it really funny to think about like the producers where they're like, you know, they're testing everybody and, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're like, that's our Hitler. That whole sequence is funny to think of it that, but it's, it's, that's our fly. Like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, like they're testing out all these people, Mel Brooks and the writer pretty much are testing out like this list of like 150 of the best actors and all of them end up saying that they don't want to do it because, um, prosthetics, you know, they don't really want to take it on and off. They don't think they can act through it. The only person that really, that is an A-list actor at this time, or, you know, a high, like a high-listed actor that really can be a, a star of a movie like this is Jeff Goldblum. And he's like, oh yeah, I would totally act through prosthetics. I love that. So he's the only person that's like really gung-ho about that. And the readings that he gave them were like energetic and great. And they were like, yeah, but that's not kind of what we were going for with the characters looks like this is a scientist. Why would it be Jeff Goldblum? Which, you know, I mean, Jurassic Park comes out years later and it's Jeff Goldblum once again as a scientist. So he really, he killed his performance enough to keep it up. But um, <laughs> so, you know, they go through that entire list and I can try to find the list of some of the actors that they talk to um, and do the Conan thing, but I don't do bits very well. Um, and then, so he gets cast and then he says, hey, my girlfriend, Gina Davis, like, I'd really like, I think she'd be great for this. Um, will you read, like, will you hear her read? And they said like, yeah, I guess, sure. And then she absolutely goes in and uh, crushes the reading. And this is, this is them talking about it. And this is kind of, does some uh, good, uh, you know, does some good hoggle energy to it, I guess, with the person going like, um, actually, I think this might be the, uh, the script and not, you know, her performance. I think we just wrote a really good script, but of course. <laughs> uh, was involved with Gina. He asked us to read her. She came in and gave, she was the first person to read for the part. She gave an astounding reading. And she walked out and Cronenberg uh, said, well, let's sign her. And I said, oh, no, well, you know, I mean, it's the script that's amazing. I mean, we got to, you know, it's the first time we've heard it. We've got to, you know, read some other actresses. So, you know, we read other actresses and nobody ever came close. We had a really good time working together. We both were um, just incredibly passionate about making this work, you know, that we really got the story and loved it and really agreed with David and, and got that the important thing was going to be the love story in this, that it, that underneath all the sticky things, that there was a really intense powerful uh, love story. And, and as David explained it at one point that 
if you substituted cancer for turning into a fly, there would be a, kind of a serious drama about what happens when your loved one turns into something else and you see them deteriorate before your eyes. And uh, so that was a very helpful way to look at it. She gave a pretty moving performance, though, I have to say. Like yeah. in every scene that she was, uh, I think she, she genuinely looked like she was just awestruck by this scientist guy. And she she had the curiosity. She also had like some really tender emotions, uh, even when he was not like behaving his best, which was kind of like something that was that was almost like unnaturally good. You never see that today. You see one. You see one weird hot person, but you know the other one has to be like a regular hot person. This movie took a chance. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, they got great on-screen chemistry too. You know. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of building up towards us kind of just talking about this movie without clips and stuff because you know I want to talk through like our as Karthik and I always do like our theories about this movie and and what they were trying to say and I wrote a bunch of notes and everything and but yeah, but I um, want to. I By the way, just just uh, yeah. other actors for the the for the fly. The only one I could find so far is John Lithgow. Like, who the that's who the studio really wanted for the role, and he turned right. down. I mean, all right, so the, so so the face works, and if you listen to, I, I don't want to listen to it right now because we've we've been clip heavy for the first half hour. But uh, you know, Cronenberg kind of talked through um, why he chose, you know, why what he was looking for, and then why he ended up choosing Jeff Goldblum. Like you, the, the Lithgow face does work for that. I think it's like you know oddly shaped enough that it's like interesting, but it, it, his features are pretty flat. Yeah, you know? and, and I just can't see him as a romantic the, uh, lead, though. He ended up he ended up fusing himself in Churchill. That's what happened, and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd just be a weird movie with uh with John Lithgow starring. Yeah, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been rooting for Lithgow the same way that I rooted for Jeff Goldblum, because. I have a crush on Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Nobody has a crush on Jeff Goldblum. He's like, I feel like Jeff Goldblum over time has just aged into his features, and like now looks kind of. He's no longer like weird hot. He's just like a like a attractive older man that has that same Jeff Goldblum energy. So like, I don't know. I just I've always I've always felt like he's he's like very well. Now he's in the jazz band too. Maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> But I also feel like this this movie kind of uh, justified uh, his mannerisms far more. It kind of almost felt like they they it, I, he improvised definitely. But at the same time, it does feel like the movie fit him so well that I don't I don't know if I you know he's very entertaining in every other film that he's been in. But I ha- hadn't seen him like be tailor made this perfect for a role um, in any other case. Like I don't think anything even comes close. Um, and, and, and I haven't seen enough Jeff Jeff Goldblum movies, maybe, but uh, you know, that's how I felt when I watched this. Yeah, and it's not written for him whatsoever. Hmm. Um, like it's left with room for whoever it is to improvise. But I, so I watched this uh, making of thing, and I didn't clip this because it was half an hour of dialogue that was kind of really boring. But the process of making of writing this movie is really interesting because it's Mel Brooks that gets the idea. Very weird that it's Mel Brooks that gets the idea, but Mel Brooks wants to remake The Fly. And that writer that at the beginning of the Gina Davis clip was like, oh, well, isn't it the script? Like, that guy? Like, So he hires him first, he hires somebody, and there's a different director. And the director is kind of like this 
Yeah, uh, also, you kind of, uh, they offered it to Cronenberg. Cronenberg turned it down because he was making Total Recall. Yeah, and and his editor was making Total Recall. And they were still trying to make, they were still supposed to be kind of making Total Recall. I yeah. think at the end of it while they're making this. So, but he's also making Total Recall and he's like, but they offered it to a lot of different directors too. And, you know, they find this British guy and it's like his first, one of his first movies. And he's like really down to do it. In the middle of writing the script and doing rewrites, they did rewrite after rewrite. They fired, uh, you know, that guy at the beginning, they fired his like friend that he had to write with or whatever as a writing partner. Like there was all of these different things. Then Fox shut down. So Fox like totally changed up who was working there. This was the only movie in production. As that's happening, the original director finds out that his daughter got killed in South Africa or something in some freak accident. So, you know, so... Elon Musk was the uh, guilty party. <laughs> he threw emeralds at her. <laughs> he <laughs> her emerald. Oh, fuck. No. Um, so, so there's this whole... And th these, this is like a multi-year-long process. Finally, uh, you know, right before this movie is about to be made, they called up Cronenberg one more time. They said, how much would you want to make this? Like, we really just, we need somebody. Like, we've been trying to make this for a long time. Um, and he, he said uh, $750,000. And Mel Brooks, being the bro that he is, being the, the good friend, uh, rounded it up to a million dollars for him. Wow. That, you know, so he calls up the, the head of the studio and says, like, we, we can get Cronenberg, best director in this genre. Um, but, you know, it's going to cost a million dollars flat rate that's all you have to do you guys said oh hell yeah like instantly so they got cronenberg signed him up brought his editor in from total recall that was supposed to still be working on total recall which is kind of funny um got him like a crew and everything like that and then uh he looked at the script and said i don't like the script i have to totally rewrite this so the original script um they're already a married couple just like in in the story just like in the in the other movie um, and he writes it into a couple that meets for the first time and turns it into a love triangle and says, the only way this will work is if it's like almost, I mean, it is almost kind of like a Guillermo del Toro thing where we talk about Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth, right? Like it's a, a monster. Or shape movie. of Water. Yeah. Yeah. But no, but I'm saying like Guillermo del Toro, did, del Toro did Pan's Labyrinth. Like the fact that we referenced that, like it's not just going to work as a monster movie. Like we're kind of past that, right? Like there has to be something more interesting about a monster movie or something original about it and because the flight are even made like you have to do it as something else so Cronenberg said I want to make a romantic movie um using this concept so he kind of totally rewrote the whole thing into into what it is and it really works I think because they are a real life couple yeah it opens on a meet cute so you know it's it's <laughs> like 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 you're 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 it, it opens right in the middle of a rom-com um starring yeah, really, really and, Davis. and and then you know um like more rom-com should be he goes through an experiment that turns him into a fly i i really think that um you know i, I would watch more rom-coms if there were more fly mutations in them and i, I thought the yeah. i thought getting the you know uh asking her for a for a unique belonging that she could give and i thought that that was a pretty you know uh, almost cheeky, cheekily well done scene where she like takes off her uh, pantyhose and uh, gives it to him, and he puts it in the uh, in the in the pod, and then it it teleports, and uh, that's kind of like a nice nice way of like both you know sort of winning her over, but also at the same time proving that his uh, machines work. It's kind of kind of neat. I mean, like it it's 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 it fits the characteristic of like being this you know 
slightly sneaky, slightly like almost shady guy. <laughs> How I met your mother. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was that was pretty cool. I thought. Um, and, and I should say that they did write and shoot a bunch of a lot of exposition for it, and mm-hmm. not in the final movie. But I'm saying like deleted. They ended up deleted and cut. So they ended up. Um, there was like you know, there's the his, her ex boyfriend who's her publisher, like yelling on the phone about somebody um, at the conference and explaining it out and being like, "Well, you need to stay at that conference." And like, you know what I mean? So the Bartok conference or whatever, which you know, you can substitute it for like the Tesla conference and like you know any any of those kind of scientific companies that you know are doing a bunch of different stuff at once. But um, you know, it's interesting to me. Like, it's fascinating to me. They ended up uh, cutting out all of the exposition in the beginning. Because there's a lot of different scenes that they did cut out. It would have explained to you, like, this is a journalist going to a scientific, uh, you know, company's conference. And she's working for a scientific magazine. But the fact that it opens up first with Jeff Goldblum going, you know, I, I'm working on something that's going to uh, uh, change the world. And, like, like as we know it. And, like, the, the, like, that opening line, which is clearly a line to try to get her interest in, you know, I mean, yeah. going to his yeah. lab, but like, like well, I guess. Yeah, he's been at bars trying to you know, pick up women for a while like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on something that's going to uh, uh, change the world. Are you going to buy these drinks or not? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh. Every... <laughs> no, but like, so the fact that it opens on that rather than kind of saying, here's I a journalist. I'm wallet in Tuesday's pants. And you kind of have to, over time, um, you faster than, than you know, uh, the, the the character have to put together this whole thing where you're like, oh, like she's a journalist and everything. So he doesn't seem to when she finally has her tape recorder out and he's like, wait, no, you're a journalist? Like you think you'd assume that like he knew that the entire time, not to pick up a journalist, but like, you know, you realize like, oh, I've put this all together and Jeff Goldblum hasn't, which kind of makes that slow dynamic kind of work. And then when he finally turns into the fly, you're like, oh no, this is uh, this isn't regular speed Jeff Goldblum now. <laughs> I think like the first 30 minutes is just like uh, a sort of two man uh, or like two person play with just the two of them right like you they're kind of like almost getting to know each other but uh, it's it's all exposition because she's kind of revealing what kind of journalist she is and uh, the kind of issues that she has with the publisher who like comes in very briefly but then uh, Jeff Goldblum kind of reveals uh, I mean Seth Brand reveals himself to be this um, guy who's like almost shy in the way that he's he's not even able to like look at the camera when he's speaking kind of thing and she's actually you know encouraging him and she's like she's she's kind of being the nurturing sort of type uh, where he's concerned and uh, and all of that and that's mainly what we're focusing on like we're we're not really even uh, you know introduced to the actual science behind this like we just like take for granted that this machine works or maybe it doesn't but but yeah yeah i mean i wrote down a bunch of the clips in the beginning or quotes in the beginning of it and um he really doesn't explain it at all yeah <laughs> until about 15 minutes in he kind of does and i and i do love the whole um he's like stathis i guess which is a weird name for a fucking person but stathis her ex-boyfriend that's her publisher uh when he finally says he's conning you it's an old nightclub routine to cabinets right because you can kind of picture that you know someone could accidentally kind of run into a journalist and be like oh i'm creating this invention and then bring them back to the lab which is not what Jeff Goldblum's character is doing, right? Like Seth is kind of just oblivious to the fact that she's a journalist, oblivious to the, he's just like, oh wow, I found a cute girl and I'm gonna explain to her, like show her my teleporter. And it's probably the first person that I've ever shown my teleporter to. Mm-hmm. So, but like when you hear that line, it's like, oh no, like he could have like a, a trap door or something. 
and pull the trap door and then a stocking. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of different, just seeing it isn't enough to necessarily believe the science behind it. And you start thinking about that, or at least I did. Um, but, but throughout that, right? Like I, I like that she's like dubious about it. And she's like, Oh, a designer phone booth. I bet you have a really cute jukebox in here too. Like, yeah. I, this guy that I found at this thing is kind of insane. And he's showing me like this weird thing behind a curtain. And it's like, I'm going to humor him, but this is fucking weird. And, yeah, um, I have to say, like having having that much confidence, especially like if you are gonna make, if, if you feel like this guy is not the real deal, then showing up with him to a completely, you know, abandoned place where there's literally no other soul but just this guy, it's like it it feels like extremely unwise. Like uh, who knows what he's doing there? There's an ambition there, and, and I'm sure you'll 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 feel this as a writer. Like there is an ambition that if you've kind of been hired to do a job, and someone's like, listen, I need you to go somewhere and find somebody to write a story about there's this conference it's like a big scientific thing and someone kind of dangles that morsel in front of you and it's like listen i have something that's going to revolutionize everything you can think that you know you're going to be like there's going to be a part of you that's like this is very unwise especially as a woman i guess like you know as a younger woman but like you can think like there's something that's very unwise about this but at the same time you're like well i need to justify that i need to keep writing for this magazine like a lot of people right. have full-time writing jobs like i'm lucky to have this so she kind of takes that gamble. And I think that it, the fact that she's a journalist and you realize that in the very beginning of it um, makes that interesting because it's like, all right, well, she's kind of saying that, you know, she's she needs the story enough uh, to, to kind of come along. Whereas if she was just kind of a person that was at a bar and he's like, listen, I'm working on something that's going to change the world. And she, you know, she got in the car with him or got, well, he got in her car, I guess, because he gets sick in the car in the very beginning. But, you know, like, you, you'd, you'd maybe think about it and be like, oh, shit, you shouldn't do that. But in this case, they're kind of put stakes to it. Like, you know, she has a she has pressure to her editor and she needs to kind of come up with that. To, to the car point, I, f- I, f- I feel like this movie uh, is almost like prescient uh, in the way that it kind of portrays the um, inventor of the of the, you know, like the, the computer digital age, basically. Uh, all of these inventors, um, interestingly, uh, I think one of the first things that Mackenzie uh, Bezos, when she divorced, like was it was revealed that like she was driving him around and like including the the whole trip to Seattle or wherever they went, mm-hmm. that she drove apparently uh, or something like that. And it's kind of fascinating how like there are certain attributes like he doesn't drive. He has like some kind of uh, quirk or like idiosyncrasy that prevents him from driving, which is like the motion sickness. He's not an inventor either. Uh, he actually just puts it together. Like other people are doing the inventing for him. Like I always remember the Bill Burr bit, which is like, uh, I, I want it like this, not like this, um, get on it and like stuff like that. So he's just basically a guy who's, uh, you know, um, telling other people what to do. Um, and he's also extremely like neurotic and has this sort of extreme like internal energy, but he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't know how to express himself properly, etc. Like completely nerdy, but also, you know, like socially, socially awkward, dysfunctional uh, sort of characteristic, uh, which I mean, uh, we were making this comparison earlier before before going live. Um, like if you were to contrast that with an inventor like Howard Hughes or something like how Leo DiCaprio played him in The Aviator, which was also like kind of a an eccentric neurotic character, but he was also super functional in like society like he was also like you know attending red carpet events and stuff like that so i wonder like what happened in the digital age that like you know the the characteristics of the inventor just like drastically changed 
I, I don't think that they drastically changed necessarily because, you know, Einstein, the most brilliant scientist of all time, was an incredibly, uh, I mean, not neurotic maybe, but he definitely had uh, a form of autism. Like, he wasn't really able to take care of himself. He had constantly, like, papers and everything all over him. And I don't think that necessarily all of that was known at the time this movie was made, right? Like, the books about his biographies kind of came out a little bit later. And I, I have his biography upstairs, actually, and I kind of find it fascinating because he was an avowed pacifist and He's like kind of a fascinating character, but kind you know, of um, right about the time the movie came out, it, it, you know, it was, you know, but this movie was in development for a while. And I just remember in around 86, there was a small Einstein boom. Yeah. Hmm. So like, you know, kind of having every shirt uh, needs to be like, just so that he doesn't ha- even have to do that. Like you just get up and he's fine. Steve Jobs did that too. Right. Like that's why he keeps wearing the, kept wearing the, the, the turtleneck and the jeans and the sneakers and everything. But you'd assume that he's probably copying Einstein or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, like, because I think it's, I think in the digital age, what we've come up with is the manufactured genius. Like, yeah, the Jobs person. was more manufactured. Like, like the the difference between Jobs and and um, Seth Brundle. Seth Brundle actually had the vision of what the product is and, and how it actually functions. Where Jobs is like, I don't know, make this flat thing that you can do stuff with your fingers on it, and and go do it. And would tell somebody to go do it. Whereas he's like, okay, I don't know how to make this part, this part of it, but I understand like this is what it needs to. Uh, because with uh, this, 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 and this, I can make this other, you know, make this greater thing. So like, he he actually is what like people assume people like Jobs or Musk or you know Tony Stark, yeah. right? Really and he, is. And he is that also because you know he doesn't really cost, as he says, he doesn't very really cost very much money. He's just kind of inventing one thing. You'd assume that at some point, if he hadn't transported himself and turned into half fly, half man, and they actually had rolled it out, right, he would end up probably being one of those figures. Like, this is the first invention, kind of, that, that uh, well, he also has his, um, I'm trying to, I wrote it down, but he has, like, the C-19 or something, F- F-32, I guess. They never say what that is, but uh, status says, your new playmate's quite brilliant. He was the leader of the F-32 team, remember that? He was inches from the Nobel Prize, he was only 20 at the time. So he's, like, this pro- precocious... Uh, you know, young young guy that has kind of decided I'm going to make this and has a has a a plan for it, but doesn't really know how to do the manufacturing. Which I mean, does make sense. Um, the fact that he considers himself a systems manager is interesting. He's mm-hmm. no longer you know bringing this up into it because Karthik and I constantly get made fun of by Conan or whoever else for uh, bringing this up. But like the neoliberal aspect of it. I don't know. Conan before has been like, you guys can talk about the neoliberal like aspect of, of whatever movie you want. I'm going, I'm going to go play, which I hope you are. If you're in Minneapolis watching Conan play, but, <laughs> but like the neoliberalized version of it, right? Like as a systems manager and seeing all of these different, uh, like almost as seeing a computer or like a, a, a machine of some kind. I really got, I really watched this movie too many times and watched too much Jeff Goldblum because I feel myself going, uh, uh, <laughs> but watching this, this like, under neoliberalism, every kind of thing has its has its piece, and he can kind of farm out for that. And it's kind of um, almost like a, a metaphor for that in some ways, right? Like he's the systems manager at the top, and then everyone else is kind of doing it, and then he's going to put it together, and he's the one that sees the vision of it. But like each part of it is uh, different, and each part of it isn't something that he can necessarily engineer himself. And it, like kind of in this age where things are made that way, right? Like in, the, in this age where manufacturing is something right. that you stand out for. Manufacturing is no longer something that you do in-house, which you could assume that, you know, decades before, you'd have to manufacture everything or have someone on staff that could. And 
you know, yeah. there's plants that you're working with or something. But like, it, it's interesting that he can kind of descend out for that, and then the thing comes to him. Um, you know, and and I don't know if uh, like I mean, build me a laser here. All right, that works. But like, design me a molecular analyzer. Like that's something new I think in in this universe that I don't necessarily think is is at this time existing. <laughs> Yeah, well, the other thing, too, is that, like, um, uh, you know, back in the 1800s, you know, they had to actually, like, um, like, you know, look at the Wright brothers. Like, one of them was a, you know, was a bicycle mechanic. And, like, like they would actually have to, um, you know, you didn't order parts like you do now because there's a standard F32 um, uh, screw that, that goes into your bicycle, that, that goes into every bicycle, whatever. You know, I'm just making stuff up right now. Um, they actually had to like manufacture these things, you know, like, like right. the bolts and the screws and, and uh, work, you know, maybe, maybe they weren't necessarily the blacksmith, but they'd work with the blacksmith to get the parts that they needed um, to, to be able to build their bicycles. And so when it came to the plane, it's, it's much the same idea of, um, <laughs> you know, putting, putting together the pieces um, and I, I think, you know, like I said, I, I think there's a slight difference with Seth Brundle because he, he's, you know, um, because the fact that he, he, you know, it's not, he's not telling somebody else to, to build it for him. He's actually putting the pieces all together. He might right, be yeah. carving out the small no, parts. He, he, decides, he has an, a, a plan about how this whole thing is supposed to be formatted. He doesn't necessarily know how to put every part together, which is kind yeah. of how it works at this point, right? Like you farm out for manufacturing but you 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 understand the science of it you're the engineer yeah so so, so how, how the pc itself is right like you know if you if yeah. you see look at a computer it's like a, it's a bunch of parts and uh, they kind of work together but you you get to make them all separately and like you can assemble like the whole assembled device and like how you can do it yourself you can put the computer together yourself and, and I would agree a, isn't what Steve I, I just I just want to you know make that 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 point of that that you know him being a manager yes he might see himself as the manager which I think is is very humbling uh to see that as opposed to someone like you know Musk or Jobs who take all the credit for it mm -hmm. um uh but but he he is a little more involved with the actual uh creation of the device as opposed to say like a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk who who at the very least might be like you know, make me a tablet. This is what a tablet does go, you know? Right. And, and then, you know, does tablet. I don't know how it works, but I, I, I assume that you yeah. take some tabs, you get on Twitter, send out some tweets, and then, you know, you lose 20% of the stock price. Get me a machine that does that. But, but you know so what I'm saying? Like, like, like it's, it's more than just the fact that he's, um, you know, managing the various parts to put this that was together. my that was just my assumption of what elon musk does not steve jobs but no I mean, steve jobs you know puts the bathroom in the center of the building so everybody can meet and uh <laughs> they can have a meetings of minds of all over the place well and that's the manufactured aspect of our generation of creators right like we've kind of reached this uh as they say on twitter quirked up moment where you know kind of people are like well the only way that i can really be a, a genius seen as a genius is if i'm as weird as possible if I come up with like these weird aesthetic choices that there's only aren't. one bathroom and it's in the center of the building. Yeah. And so everybody must go to it. And, and then everyone's like, wow, that, that's an idea that someone hasn't put out there before. And because it's an idea that someone hasn't put out there before, that's the idea that like, <laughs> oh, this must be a, a genuine, a genuine uh, genius. Well, you look at someone like Einstein, Einstein just happened to be autistic. Like that, that wasn't a quirk that he was like, you know, manufacturing. He's just kind of, you know, an older German man that, uh, like German Jewish man that you know um, was in America, not not for his whole life obviously, but like from you know World War II was going on and like he's coming up with these ideas and he's kind of has a, a 
uh, like it's kind of a, a detriment to him that he has all of these quirks. It's not, yeah. it's not like people are like, oh, Einstein has a bunch of quirks, therefore he must be a genius. It's like, yeah, this guy is like we've kind of registered he's a genius, but he kind of has all these quirks. You kind of have to work around them. He shows up. He has like paper. Like that's that's like one of my favorite things about Einstein when you read it. The, and they're like, yeah, he showed up to class. He would have like little bits of paper on him and like you know like kind of just be generally oblivious to his um, physical state and then be doing like these brilliant you know like these brilliant problems and explaining through things brilliantly but it's like that's not something that someone's cultivating and today I feel like we're in this weird digital age where that kind of people are just cultivating aesthetics and you don't feel like Seth Rundle is cultivating aesthetics you just feel like this is a weird guy that's in a warehouse that's like realized that he can kind of uh, do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't cost that much money. So he kind of farms out the the, the, the parts, which, you know, he is going to take credit for that. But then uh, the actual Bartok is going to take credit for the actual invention. So it's like, you know, he, he ends up putting it together. They don't know what he's working on. Nobody knows what he's working on. He can kind of just be quirky in his own space, which is not what today's. I mean, maybe if he had gotten famous from this and hadn't, you know, fused himself with a fly, <laughs> you could think that maybe at some point he would be like, a, it's like, but it's kind of like, um, not to bring this up again, but the Kanye West version of what someone thinks a genius is. Like when Kanye West just went full fucking crazy and like, yeah, he's bipolar, but also like he definitely leaned into that to be like, see, I'm a genius. Like I'm out of my fucking mind. I'm off my medication. Yeah, I love the part where he's like climbing up the wall and Kim Kardashian's completely freaking out. Like, how are you doing that? Uh, another thing that I think is like uh, an important aspect of like anybody who's uh, who's like a self-proclaimed genius uh, post Steve Jobs or even including Steve Jobs is that they all like built from ideas that was literally like handed to them on a silver platter. Like basically Bill Gates got most of the stuff already from either IBM or I think it might be IBM. Steve Jobs got it from uh, Bill Gates, I think. Right. Like yeah, I mean, IBM he- and Texas Instruments, if I remember correctly. Right, and then um, I mean Zuckerberg well, got got it from the. Though, thanks for getting me through the regions. Right. My fucking Texas Instruments calculator. <laughs> uh, and, and like, uh, what, what's his name? Uh, Zuckerberg got the the product already. I mean, he was supposed to be making a different product, and he stole it. Like, as if David Fincher's yeah. movies to be believed. Uh, and, and like, basically, they're just putting together things that they have already been given, which are like eighty percent, ninety percent of the way there. Uh, but Seth Brundle is definitely like, you know, creating something from scratch. And I don't think there's an existing prototype for anything that he's trying to do. But also yeah. another thing that I think uh, takes him back that. to the right, the right brother characteristic, uh, the right brother caliber of inventor is that he himself, like he's putting himself on the line, uh, which I don't think any of these guys like including. And that's that's one of the thing, first things that came to my mind when, when, when I saw the Elon Musk comparison. Definitely, I can see every other aspect like adding up you know, to be a Elon Musk like character, but uh, it takes a lot of humility to actually, you know, like make yourself the subject of um, your invention, which I think like uh, one of the Wright brothers, I forget who was actually on the plane that flew. Um, and, uh, you know, like anybody who uh, used to make inventions, especially with respect to flight, like nearly every other person who tried making something that, that can fly actually subject themselves to the test. Well, you have uh, which to, I, I mean, like at that point, I don't think you really kind of find... I, mean, I guess you kind of find <laughs> offers or something, and on the right. street, you're like, but I don't, you know. And but I want to, I want to turn this kind of episode into two parts uh, here. And the middle part is um, this is the the pre, like the pre transformation. And I want to talk about the post transformation. But uh, before doing that, and this will be the the, the cutoff halfway point. 
Um, this is the love story part that Cronenberg is talking to. Honestly, probably the perfect person to put uh, uh, prosthetics on. It's just some Swedish guy, but he has a very weird face. But um, look at that guy's face. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he's full Charlie Kirk. Charlie Quirked, as I, as I should say. But I, I think that, you know, bringing up one more inventor, I guess, there's kind of the idea of, uh, it's really funny that, it, you know, Tesla's named after this, but Tesla inventing, you know, a bunch of different things and then Edison stealing them because Tesla really couldn't monetize them. And you can think of Edison as kind of the uh, earliest version because he had, number one, he had a bunch of people working for him that were inventing things that he could take credit for. And he was also stealing ideas. You could think of him as kind of the proto, I mean, Number one, the proto Elon Musk, but also like the proto any of these kind of uh, inventors now, where it's just the, the inventor themselves as a brand, he kind of was the one that started that idea. And I don't feel like Seth Rundle is that at all. But you can think that if Seth Rundle had been successful, he probably would have become that because, uh, you know, from there you form a company. And, once and, and he was a showman too. Like, like, let's not forget that. Like, he was going around electrocuting elephants um, to show why AC is safer than DC. <laughs> I would. I mean, I, Elon Musk should have called his company Superman movies, but whatever. I mean, Elon Musk should have called his company Edison, but I guess like that name was already taken by the power company. Yeah, but also that would have shown what he was actually trying to do. Unlike Tesla, which makes it sound like it's something original. Because I've had I've had friends that are like engineers or want to be engineers that are like really into Elon Musk, and they're like, and I'm also really into the ideas of Tesla, and I'm like. Like the the adventure Tesla, I mean, like you know this story. And I'm like, number one, yes, I did. Number two, that seems, you know, it's David Bowie, bro. It's David Bowie. <laughs> but I think uh, I wonder if people agree that I think one of the most underappreciated aspects of this film is also the the love story. I, I mean, I actually think it's a really complicated love story, right down to this final act of euthanasia. And I don't know if that's something that you sort of felt obligated to work into the story? No, on the contrary. I mean, both the, both the short story and the original screenplay had uh, the, the, the couple uh, married for a long time. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and their relationship was really pretty uh, normalized and, and very static and didn't have any ripples in it except for this one monstrous moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, you know, I really want to see them meet each other. I want to see them meet each other and, and strike sparks off to each other and, and have difficulties and have jealousy. And, and so, no, they, 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 it was not at all perfunctory. It was of the essence that, that, that the, it was a love story that the audience was involved in right from the beginning of the mm -hmm. meeting of those two people. And that wasn't in the original script and it wasn't in the... Uh, the old movie, and it wasn't in Lang Long's uh, uh, story. Mm -hmm. Well, it also really allows you to trace Seth Brundle's transformation in a different way, because we see him as this brilliant but sort of nerdy guy, and then suddenly, you know, uh, once he gets into the teleportation machine, uh, he also has this kind of sexual awakening and emboldening, and it and it changes the nature of their relationship as as well. It kind of helps him win the the love triangle. Yeah, it's sort of like um, you know, internet sex. Really, now maybe it's kind of <laughs> so? a, a precursor to that. You know, how how, how so is it? Well, the, the, you know, if each of you was in a telepod, I don't want to get into this. Okay, <laughs> now, let's not talk about that. Um, 
Uh, well, I, I mean, the other reason I'm harping about this is because lately when I rewatch your films, I actually think that a lot of your films deal not just with, uh, with romance, but also with the complexities of long-term relationships. I think that the marriage and history of violence is, is very rich with nuance. Um, obviously, the relationship or the broken relationship in, in The Brood feels like it's imbued with a lot of uh, very personal material. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of these things, you know, we, we get, uh, after all these years, we get caught up talking about certain themes in your work, mostly to do with uh, the body, mostly to do with sort of existential terror. Uh, but I actually, I'm starting to think that you are, you know, intermittently a, a very adept teller of love stories. I'm a romantic, definitely, <laughs> as you can tell from this movie. Um, well, well, not, well, no, not, but, not it's, true, but it's true, but it's, right? yes, because basically, you know, I mean, you know, as an artist, you are ex exploring the human condition. What is it to be a human being? And you are not doing that in an abstract way. You cannot film an abstract concept. You have to film a concrete thing, whether it's a human being or somebody or, or, or an object. And light has to fall on it. Has to light without something to fall on is not light. So you you therefore uh, the human condition is an abstract idea um, to make it concrete so that light can fall on it you have to put it in a very definite context mm -hmm. north america in this case the city of toronto my city um uh, uh people you know the, it, it is a movie of its time toronto's a beautiful city david cronenberg versus the world <laughs> <laughs> It, it's kind of fascinating how uh, he he makes it uh, seem as if it's like uh, you know it's it's a, it's an energizing uh, romantic relationship because like I also kind of uh, view the uh, mating of you know interestingly enough mating of him and the fly uh, along the same line uh, like as a sort of mirror of uh, the relationship with the woman because uh, there there are elements of like you know him feeling extremely drunk with power. But also at the same time, he is uh, extremely vulnerable. He he gets jealous, and like uh, it's also kind of telling that the woman ev eventually goes back to the ex, uh, gets back with the ex, right? And it's always like this uh, guy. This guy, the, sorry, I said at least as a friend. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Romantic. Yeah, <laughs> although I don't know, I, I I can't remember if he survives or if he's dead by the end of it. No, he survives. He's in the sequel too. Um, they got the same actor back for, for a scene where he's just like, uh, he's apparently living in a house by himself where he's just drinking all day and just being like, hey, he took my hand and my foot. And he's got like, you know, this, this weird glove over his stomach. Mm. Yeah. So I, I feel like this is the, the middle point. He goes into the, you know, he gets jealous. He's drunk. I, I think that it is telling that she seduces him. And mm -hmm. then as she's seducing him, he gets the, the crick in his back. And, you know, it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's a little heavy handed, I guess, like watching it through again, but like, you know, he has a crick in his back. He's like, oh, I can't keep going. This crick is on my back. And she's more sexually powerful. She's more sexually dynamic. And he kind of has to get seduced by her. He clearly was interested in her from interested in her from the beginning, but doesn't really have the ability to make the move. Game. Um, he has no game. Yeah. <laughs> Come back to my lab is not very good game, but you know what I mean? Like, no, no, I had a very similar move. It was, uh, want to see my portfolio? <laughs> oh, that's worse than that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
But I, I guess at least you're probably maybe holding your portfolio, and at least he had to drive somewhere with her, which makes it weirder. But um, so at least he has pods in in which you can disappear and stuff. You uh uh, uh like you like you have a jewel you like jewel pods. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so I did find it interesting that you know the sexual aspect of this, uh, and and he says throughout it, the flesh, right? Like he's kind of comparing the machine not being able to process flesh to him being um, uh, the virgin, the virgin. Um, he says, I bet you woke me. I bet you think you woke me up to the dangers of the flesh. Like he's kind of, he's the, he's the virgin Seth Brundle. And then there's the, the Chad Brundle fly, um, you know, on the, on the other side of it. So he goes to the teleporter. He's, he's drunk. He, you know, he trusts a fucking baboon that, he, that whose brother he killed, by the way, that baboon might've had some fucking beef with him. He trusts that baboon to watch over the process and, I don't know why the baboon didn't do as good as he could have, but you know, going to the bar, baboon's my wingman. So he goes through it, and you know, watching, like thinking about the fly, like I've seen scenes of it, and I've seen the scenes where he's in full fly makeup. So I thought like he was going to end up fucked up by it. I don't think I've seen the teleporter scene. So the fact that he kind of comes out normal, um, and then he's on the other side of the power dynamic for sure because he's having sex with her. And then she's the one that kind of has the pain and is like, oh, I need to stop. And there's that moment of it. And, you know, he's gone full Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> or Sting, because uh, Sting did brag he could have eight hours of tantric sex. So No, but I'm saying, like, he's gone full Jeff Goldblum is and they go to the restaurant and he's talking full speed and he's doing what Jeff Goldblum does. And, and like, in, throughout that whole interview, you could tell Jeff Goldblum was at the speed of the fly. <laughs> he might have actually gone through the fucking tunnel. I, I thought the I thought the kind of treatment of uh, him getting the superpowers, so to say, like um, kind of like a Spider-Man after the you know the spider bite sort of way. Um, I felt like this was one of the more compelling uh, portrayals of uh, how a person would react after getting superpowers. Uh, I liked every nearly every Spider-Man. I mean, I, I've I've, still, I've yet to watch an action. I mean, I can't I think I watched the Tom Holland version, but I it's it was not memorable, but. Uh, even the Andrew Garfield version had like some elements of like how a human being would react if you had that kind of power. You never had the for origin the with Tom Holland. Tom Holland never had his fly experience. Right. It's like, oh, about, sticky stuff. The good thing about Tom Holland is that he's the only one that looks like he could be the age of the character that he's playing. Well, right. he actually is, but was yeah. when he first started playing. So that's that's the only like positive Tom, Tom Holland aspect of it. <laughs> Which is weird because like the first guy to ever play uh, Spider-Man on screen was like this middle-aged um, no, like guy. Tobey Maguire. No, no, no. Before oh. him in the 70s, they had this guy who looked even older than Tobey Maguire. Hey, I'm in high school. <laughs> what high school girls are Like the Steve Buscemi out? meme from 30 Rock. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. Um, yeah. And, but and, like, uh, yeah. But 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 it's fascinating that uh, you know you get a gymnast. Uh, there were like two gymnast stunt doubles, and uh, you actually get the full weight of that scene because he actually stands on his hand for the first time, and she's seeing him do that, and and you get her reaction like light, right? Like she has never seen him do that, and she's probably seen enough of him to know that this guy is not the most athletic of people. And oh, through her, ah, fuck my back, I can't sit on my <laughs> yeah. hands. <laughs> yeah through through her you kind of experience how wild it is and even his face like he can't believe that he's doing it either and and the whole like i think for five minutes you just see him like attempting new things and realizing that he's able to do them i felt like for the first time i could see a superhero origin where 
you actually feel the weight of uh, whatever was happening to him through and, both and performances. Yes, throughout. I mean, Captain America is a, is a good example, right? Like, it's a weakling that can't really impress a girl in general. Like, comics, I think, and the, the movie, like, you know, and then suddenly gets injected with something in his full strength. You know what I mean? Like, so that kind of thing happens a lot. It's, it's interesting in this movie specifically, and I think that this is what makes it kind of a, a transgressive or like a, um, a subversive, I guess, genre movie is this last bit where he starts to deteriorate because mm. because he's the fly it happens so fast like he has like a couple of good days and then he starts falling apart which makes sense like with the life cycle of a fly like he's taking on the abilities of, of a fly but also the life cycle of a fly so that kind right. of is what fascinated me about that but like it is this kind of thing where it's like flies are pretty impressive like you know and and just insects in general like insects i mean there's like ants and stuff that can lift way more than you know their their weight which isn't that impressive when we can lift more because we're bigger but like you know you can i mean there's the statistics of it right like you, like oh an ant can lift a, a whole a, a lot and the fly can kind of has the strength that you know we don't necessarily have and all all of these different things that like insects can do that are really incredible that we don't think about because we're our size so thinking about that as like yeah like he's got the full ability of a fly which can do all these really cool things stick to the ceiling like really get through this do these incredible like uh gymnastic moves but then also like yeah but it's gonna be over in a week he's gonna be dead maybe or at least full fly like <laughs> right but also like kind of uh if, if you if you superimpose that against like the 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 life of their romantic relationship it's kind of fascinating because like he also kind of she energizes him and she brings out a whole new human being in him right like it's the same thing that the fly does in the beginning it's extremely empowering and he's like feeling uh, a form of rejuvenated and like you know he almost feels like reborn uh but then uh, over time the relationship disintegrates and then so does the so does the you know his his own body and like his own uh the, the fly uh, the the hybrid that he is um and she kind of uh says that she doesn't want to have the baby she f- discovers that she's pregnant she doesn't want to have the baby um and like their relationship is falling apart essentially as his uh own like life and body is falling apart uh which i which i wondered like i mean what the it, it to me it kind of almost strikes uh strikes me as a sort of um this is like the eccentric character the guy who's like you know daring to think beyond the ordinary and this is like a a, a, a woman who basically has like this twist or an encounter with the extraordinary but she doesn't really want to stay there she still wants to be in the realm of like you know the the boilerplate like publisher dude uh who like you know um you know have keys to his apartment and like you know who'll show up uh while she's away and like stuff like that and it's like a very run of the mill sort of romance and like the and i guess like this is why uh, david cronenberg calling himself romantic makes sense because this is like a completely uh fa- fantastic story a fantasy story that like uh, goldblum's character is living through um and, and, and he says you know he goes kind of when he's uh full fly mode i guess um before like his body starts changing but when he's full energized Jeff, Jeff Goldblum espresso mode um says two chicken shit to become a member of the dynamic duo huh okay i'll find someone that will then i'll find someone that can keep up you're afraid right. to dive into the plasma pool aren't you afraid to be destroyed and recreated i bet you think you woke me up about the flesh don't you but you know society's straight line about the flesh and then he goes into the whole thing about you know penetrating and and all this stuff as he leaves but you know it, it's almost like she's taking his virginity um in a way or she thinks that she's taking his virginity but he's learned the full amount about his body 
through uh you know the teleporter and mm -hmm. he goes through it and he's rejuvenated and he's now a fully sexual being he's now a fully um changed being and she doesn't want to change because she feels like she's already in the zone that she's comfortable in and he's kind of going through this whole transformation now the transformation is kind of the monkey's paw right like where um you know you know the old story about the monkey's paw where you know you can make a wish on it but whatever the wish is it kind of comes with whatever negative uh aspects of that wish that you have so there's that right. kind of story to it where you know his body's falling apart and, you know, he gets only like a few days to be um, himself and doesn't really get it for the first few days of it. But like at the same time, he does want to change. He doesn't want to be himself anymore. He's alone. He's isolated. So mm -hmm. I find that kind of fascinating. There's a duality to it. She's like uh, Grimes leaving Elon Musk and uh, he, all he wants to do is fuck his car. Basically, that's the, <laughs> that's the sort and, of... Uh... And, the, and the end of this movie, I think, does kind of, I mean... It is like internet sex. I think I get what Cronenberg was trying to say with that because he is fused fully with the machine. Yeah. Um, and, he, you know, the parts of him are falling apart throughout the entire thing. I mean, he, they. I like that they do the thing in the end where they do in the original Fly too, where, you know, you see the guy as the actual fly and he's like, kill me, kill me. But they do the mercy killing. And I think the mm -hmm. mercy killing is the important part. You've released this person from, um, I guess, almost like the Icarus dynamic of what they've gone through by changing themselves in this way. But... You know, at the same time, though, um, I mean, it's it's interesting. He's fused himself, or he's been fused, maybe not on purpose, with the machine that he's created that's actually transformed him. Right. But but that's kind of uh, something that makes the, the fly uh, an interesting uh, part of this whole thing, because it was not supposed to be there the whole time, right? And it's kind of like almost like the fallibility of like such invention. And I, I feel like it was almost like the, the kind of pessimism that, all creative types especially at that at that time had about uh, you know science fiction which nowadays it's it's very weird like um, nearly i mean especially post iron man uh, i mean the post marvel iron man uh, a lot of science is like seen as a a sort of empowering thing far more than you know like as a sort of uh, warning sign uh, back when sci-fi was like really a big deal like everybody who made sci-fi was constantly making it as a sort of warning to society that like, you know, if you get overly reliant on it, you lose your humanity in the process. And, and the fly is like one, one thing that uh, it's like an unforeseen event that, you know, you can never see happening uh, that'll ruin you. Um, and uh, that makes it pretty crazy that like, you know, it, it, you think that it's what gives you the power in the first place, but it's actually what your downfall turns out to be. And I mean, well, that's, that goes back almost to like Greek mythology and these things, you know, these, uh, you know, ideas that someone can be exceptional, but whatever exception they have kind of comes with that. The Achilles heel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or or even like the, the King Midas myth where it's like, yeah, I want to turn everything to gold, but then that means you've turned everything into gold. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the world around you, like you, you, you know, tap your daughter on the back and then your daughter is a gold statue. Like these things always have a, um, an upside and a downside. I don't feel like we're there anymore. I feel like we're kind of, um, we've been in this post nineties, like, technology uh utopia where it's like technology is is, is just by definition good but mm -hmm. you know that wasn't the case for a lot of time and and you know there's always been that question that comes up i mean perfectly in jurassic park like yeah we can but should we and mm -hmm. i don't feel like that question gets asked very much anymore it's like yeah we can but you know let's do it like <laughs> isn't I'm it great i think like science fiction really doesn't even touch on stuff like that anymore it's uh, people just want to star wars um right you know, I, I you know, uh, you you have stuff like uh, even like you um, you mentioned earlier, uh, Minority Report, 
And Minority Report doesn't even like delve into like, like the whole thing is the infallibility of man as opposed to like the infallibility of machine by what we put into it, right. um, which I think may have been closer to uh, Dick's point, which I've not read that story. So I can't. The, the uh, precognitive actually works, right? Like that's the whole point. Like the precogs actually are functional. Like they never fail. Uh, it's it's the it's man who's actually revealing their um, you know uh, his or her uh, downs downsides and like you know every now and then fucking up and uh, and being greedy and like uh, being deceptive and so on like the Colin Farrell character and the other guy I forget who it was Tam who was Tom the Bruce? no the, the old older guy who ends up who turns up being the uh, the villain of the whole story oh. but but it's but it's cool yeah. Um, that's the that's the thing it's like i think um the forest is right like i feel like the tech movies have just become too hyper optimistic maybe they just like want to sell the products max more, von right? Sydow. max von Sydow. yeah the guy who played chess with death that's kind of an interesting casting choice like you know like any any movie that you cast max von Sydow, i feel like is a is an allusion to the fact that you've seen him in the seventh seal because that's supposed to be his most iconic or the exorcist <laughs> Role. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, one one other thing I think is interesting with this is that it's not just that the technology itself um can't learn or the technology itself um like he has to kind of explain to the technology over time, which is kind of how we assume the computers originally kind of worked, right? Like you'd have to kind of give them parameters and then they would do whatever it is within the parameters, which is what he's kind of doing when he farms out the uh technology too. Like you give someone that you're like, I want a laser. I want like, so he's kind of doing the same thing. He is in that way, like the systems manager of both the computer that he's come up with and of the, um, and of the people that he's kind of hiring to do this stuff. But there's, is the question like, um, you know, he, he keeps on trying to figure out why he doesn't understand flesh over and over again. And it's like, well, I haven't given it the right the description of what flesh is. So it's kind of mm-hmm. giving me the, uh, the modern chef definition of what I want. Like, I'm going to kind of just create whatever it is from scratch. And it's not going to be what it like, you know, they do the things now where it's like, um, whatever, whatever you order, they like do their own version of it. It's like, that's not right. what I want. <laughs> so the computer's doing that with the steak and they have the scene where he's eating the steak and it's just like off. And he's like, I don't understand why this is off. And he keeps trying to, cause he doesn't understand the flesh. He doesn't yeah. know about the flesh. He doesn't understand what the flesh is yet because he hasn't been through the tele, the, the teleporter. I keep saying, almost saying teleprompter, but yeah <laughs> yeah that's, well, that, that's trans- fascinating when you travel through a teleprompter it really is interesting <laughs> because you end up in such fun places i know words i have the best you become words. text on the screen yeah uh it, it's it's also fa- it's also fascinating that uh you know uh he he thinks um like it's it's interesting how uh tech utopianism leads to a form of like hyper conservatism where uh you think the flesh will be your downfall that you constantly think that you have to transcend it, you have to be, you, you have to become beyond it, uh, which is kind of uh, one of the reasons why, like this Lex Luthor guy, um, actually hates Superman because he is able to do something that uh, Lex Luthor is not, and it's also fascinating that they cast a. I don't know if that's true. That's true in the comics, but like in the movies, it's definitely that they cast a bald guy in that role. Uh, because you know, like it's supposed to be the guy who has his own, uh, has an awareness of his own importance. I mean, it's no, it's no, fu- it's also funny that Elon Musk is like, you know, minus the hair plugs, also a guy, a balding man, uh, in that respect. Uh, yeah, but like a, a picture of Elon Musk to 
make us a joke tweet about. I don't remember what it was, but it was in the last like two days. And I saw the old uh, hair plug Elon Musk before that, where he had no. And I was like, "Holy shit, dude!" Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it it reveals a lot. I mean, like, it reveals a lot only because of how much they try to hide it. Like that, there's so many people uh, who would be like totally comfortable owning that image. But uh, especially in, in, in a, I mean, I you know my hair's been growing back lately, but you know I get stressed out and my hair falls out, and hmm. uh, like you know you shave your head and you just you kind of look you, you kind of look normal because you've shaved your head rather than um, right. And, and I mean, with uh, with Lex Luthor, he he uh, in the fifties, you know, back back in the Silver Age, he lost his hair because Superman saved him from an experiment and blew out this chemical reaction that landed on his head. And he lost mm. all of his hair. It's for revenge um, on Superman. Um, but I mean, that's the Silver Age origin of it. Um, Which is still but, like, you know, it still fits the the, the kind of explanation because like he's responsible, somehow holds Superman's like superhuman might and like uh, uh, his his virility to be the response. As like the uh, he blames it for his own, you know, failings and and stuff like that so where's 86 it's uh basically he's a he's a um uh, uh an evil businessman uh they actually uh based uh, a graphic novel on the cover of trump's book um hmm. uh, i'm sorry we're having a bit of uh, my lights flashing for some reason oh my so God, you're, turning, you're, you're teleporting you're teleporting <laughs> <laughs> um anyway so so uh but they turned into that, a, that, a, that you're having right now like is interesting the same way this kind of strength is seen as a fallibility and not like infallibility, like the transformation is not embraced. And I think that that works for whether it's Superman or for this movie, like that is kind of an old sci-fi trope, right? Like it, that is kind of blamed for something rather than kind of embracing it. Cause you could think that there would be a version of this or something where he isn't trying to go into this relationship. Like let's say he truly was alone and tried to teleport himself. And it, like, if he goes with it and just kind of goes through this because his body is falling away and he's turning into this giant fly, um, what would have happened, right? Like, what if what if he is open to the experience fully? It seems like there's always limitations to that. And in the story, I mean, in this movie, like the limitation to it is obviously, um, you know, Veronica not wanting to go through the, the teleporter herself, and right. she has the full limitation of I don't want to make this change, and he kind of embraces it. And uh, but then he kind of realizes as his um, body starts to change, which is a very insect kind of thing, right? Like insects go through these transformations, um, but like. In this case, he realizes he kind of wants his old body back and is always trying to figure out like, oh, well, maybe if I put another human through it or maybe if I do this right. or that. What happens if he just um, embraces it? What happens if he just says, you know what? I don't know what this is going to become. I'm by myself in this warehouse. Why not just fully realize that I am going to change? And he would have become the full fly. But like there's never anything that really tells us what that final form uh, entails besides that last scene. So it's interesting that that kind of desire to go back um, really is a limitation or that desire to stop somebody and uh, grab them and try to fuse with them. is a limitation. Like you don't, you, you're uncomfortable with the full process because you could think that maybe he would like, if he was comfortable with the full process, he's kind of, uh, he's giving himself the, the um, excuse about it where he's like, um, hold on. I wrote it. I wrote it down. But, uh, when he says something like everybody wants to change, right? Everybody wants to be something else. I'm trying to find it. Um, you know, he, he, he starts like 
he's, he's justifying it to himself because that is him changing. But at the same time, like you could think that maybe he would fully embrace that. And maybe he would say, I'm going to change either way. Let's see what I come, what I turn into. And let's see if this full fly form of me is, is different and wants something else. And like is a, a full realization of my potential. He's unwilling to go that far. And that's why he kind of, you know, is limited. Stops in the mid- he yeah. he does like allow it to happen though uh but, but it's also fascinating again going back to the you know kind of parallel with the relationship that uh, i i've been thinking a lot about like the the chasing amy um story uh, of like how uh, a guy who's been alone or like who's never met somebody with whom like you know he has fallen head over heels with um has to self sabotage the relationship because he's never had something as good as that and therefore he's afraid that he's going to lose it so he pushes it away uh in a kind of way that i feel like uh, seth prundle does that with uh, both the relationship and the fly in a way i mean like i feel like he embraces the fly so as to push the relationship away because he does feel alone in the in the fact that he wants to go through the teleporter uh, and she doesn't want to go with him um and in the end like he wants to go back to her and and he kind of wants her even then to go uh, to go with him he forcibly uh makes her want to go with him uh in, in in the sort of king kong fashion because you know you he, he she can never understand this experience and therefore he wants to somehow make her understand um and that's kind of where uh, he comes from that's kind of fascinating i feel like uh it's it's, it's a form of self sabotage that the fly could be reflecting that like it's the tendency that you don't even know that you can't even explain but you want to get rid of something good because you're afraid of it and i think that's how he feels about the relationship that he's that he can't let that go uh, and just you know uh, the the what's the what's the phrase again let like well enough uh, uh, well enough be or something let well, that, alone. Let well like... enough alone yeah let well enough alone he can't do that uh, he has to get rid of it he has to transform and like uh, when she doesn't transform with him she's not good enough and so she has to go stuff like that Well, he also says I was not pure. It teleported it's just some purity. I was not pure. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me when I was alone. The computer got confused. There weren't supposed to be two genetic patterns and it decided to uh splice us together. My teleporter turned into a gene splicer, a very good one. Now I'm not so brundle anymore. I'm the offspring of brundle and housefly. Which mm-hmm. kind of makes it interesting that he's kind of justifying it to himself later on and he's like, "Well, everybody wants to be something else. Everybody wants to change. You know, I've kind of been forced into it." but he always feels like i mean he feels throughout it and you know veronica does too that it's like a disease and you could assume that maybe it's like evolution as itself like itself right evolution as a concept you have to change like evolution mm-hmm. pushes us forward and we haven't changed and like you you could think about this almost as a form of evolution and he's realizing well maybe i don't want to evolve maybe i want to you know stay as a, as a person maybe like this isn't where i wanted to go and 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 it's painful and like you know parts of him are falling off but like that is metaphorically um you know his his mind changing and his emotional state changing and old parts of him to fall off and it is painful to, to change and so right. like from a from a purely metaphorical standpoint it is the story of someone who um uh took <laughs> going to death golden again um uh, uh took took the chance and you know went through the went through the teleporter and then realized as they started to change that they weren't ready to change and these parts of them are falling off and they're not ready to become a new person and they start clawing back at what they used to have but there yeah. is no reversing it and i don't know i just i kind of feel like i i wasn't thinking about that until this conversation and so we started going through this but like 
I kind of find it fascinating. And he thinks that he might die and disappear, which I don't think that there is. I mean, you know, he's kind of, his body's falling away, but it's kind of being replaced by other things. And he says, why did you want to kill Brundle? The baby might be all that's left of me. So he's afraid, like, you know, she's going to, by aborting the baby, she's, she's fully killing the last of him. And he's talking about, you know, insect politics and how, um, the human part of him is falling away and he's unable to reconcile what he's becoming. And uh, like, he wants that human part of him left over. But as I, like, as, as I've kind of said a bunch of times, like what happens if you embrace that change? What happens if you go, you know what? Like, because he didn't need to eat a person. You know what I mean? Like, that's not something that the, whatever disease that he thinks that he had, like is wanting. He kind of just wants to keep splicing himself in with people to see if he can go back to what he had before. And it just seems like an, uh, he kind of reaches that wall and he realizes, like, I've gone too far over the line and now there's no going back. But, like, I want to go back. How can I claw my way back? Can I force her and the baby? Which, if the baby is part him, he's also introducing... Um, the fly DNA as well, again, right? Like, yeah. in, a, in a way, yeah. Uh, but but it's mainly, it's like the Shrek thing. Like, he wants her to become like him. It's not like he wants to become like her. And she uh, told he... him, just like Shrek did, get out of the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> But 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 yeah, I mean, uh, I I think that like uh, he would rather. It, it, I mean, I said it as a joke at that time, but uh, it does seem like it's it. He would rather go fuck his car um, and like you know uh, than to actually be uh, in a in a human relationship that he doesn't fathom, like that he can't fathom uh, because it's it's totally alien to him. And that's one of the reasons why like you you first see the fly, which is like you know the, the serendipitous thing that he didn't even anticipate like it's, it's a sort of genius of discovery or something like that you could see you know like for a creative uh person that would be like this inspiration like it's something that he hadn't even thought of um giving him some kind of kinds of powers that he didn't even foresee and then yeah, on and the, other... that, the dynamic of that relationship and it is yeah wanting to and, realize that because in the beginning he seems like he's perfectly comfortable being alone He's trying to pick somebody up maybe, but he doesn't really fathom what that entails actually kind of having ties to them. So it does, it does work in that metaphorical relationship sense. Um, right. And, and it also, uh, and in the end, eventually you see him, uh, you know, made with the computer because like, that's all that uh, he seems to know and be comfortable with. And like, once he reaches that point, uh, it's time for him to go, right? Like, uh, like the Terminator ending, like he has to, he has to kind of sacrifice himself because there is no other logical endpoint for him. Uh, I don't think there's a way forward for a character like that because he's completely refused the the human world, yeah. so to say. And he's re- completely refused the human world, but also um, been unable to reconcile himself with the fact that he has to. So right. he's kind of in this position where he's like, you know, constantly clawing back at that but also is like, well, I'm too far gone for that. So he's put himself in this weird, almost like Icarus dynamic. Right. He's flown too close to the sun and melted, but he's still alive. And the mercy killing at the end, which trust the fucking uh, Swedish person to call it euthanasia, but (laughs) (laughs) in that clip, but (laughs) oh, is that what it is? But, uh, you know, in the end, it's a mercy killing because there is no reconciling those two things. And, you know, obviously he confuses with the computer and, and he's, you know, desperate to go back to that. And I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, I mean, it is perfect for, uh, in the form of a relationship. Like he's by himself. He's comfortable with that. He meets her. He's in a relationship. He's uncomfortable being in a relationship. So he tries to transform himself. 
And then by transforming myself, realizes, oh, I've gone too far in the other direction. How can I get back to that state of being in a relationship? Mm-hmm. And isn't able to reconcile those two things because you can't. Like you have to commit to either one or the other. And he and he hasn't. And he's realized that um, you know, even the thought of wanting to have both of those at the same time, um, you know, he, he's kind of stuck in this limbo. And the fly is kind of him transforming into one side of it while also unable to um so back. What do you guys think about the fact that if he had done the monkey cat thing, um, hmm. kind of because the the thing is that he, I think where this scene comes in, and I didn't I didn't clip it, and I, I don't think that <laughs> playing it would be a good idea anyway. It's, it's very weird. No, YouTube's no, banning a lot of people, so you know. It, you it's not just that. that. It, it also like kind of destroys his character. Like like you feel sorry yeah. for him through the entire film, even after mm-hmm. he loses his mind and is hurting people. Yeah. Um, you know, there there is a certain empathy you feel for Jeff Goldblum, but if he fused a monkey and a cat and then killed it with a hammer, uh, uh, you know, like like that's just horrific in so many levels. Hmm. You know, well, I, I think the thing is that he's trying to test out what would happen if he fused uh, him himself and uh, you know and, and and Veronica, what would happen? And so he's testing out all these different things to see if does it work as a gene splicer? What happens? How many of the genes get? repaired and what can i really do with it i mean it is it's horrific but like that is what what they're trying to express i don't know why it has to be that way why wouldn't you just simple it, it, the theory why not just go with the theory? it's so wild that like it, it's always uh such an overcorrection with these uh with these guys right like um even in even in hollow man like uh the the way that he responds or um comes back or like the way he retaliates against his uh ex-girlfriend finding somebody new um which kind of is similar i would say to you know like in this case gina davis's character uh ronnie yeah uh, getting rid of the baby which is like doing something that he doesn't fully you know he he's not on board with that like so the, the way he has to deal with it is to completely uh go overboard in trying to you know like here he's trying to fuse himself with um with the woman and like he doesn't even know what's going to happen maybe they turn out to be one person right like they might not be separate individuals even and he's willing to do that and that's the only way in which he's willing to actually be with her because he wants to get fused with her so it's just like a crazy overcorrection from just like being a normal person and you know not not wanting to teleport himself just like doing stalkings and uh, you know little little things that he doesn't have to do a human teleportation yet uh but he has to do that like he has to go that full extent and and so the only thing that he's able to do is um imagine himself like in this like s- psychopathic sort of um r- relationship uh, pursuit like he has to get so crazy with the way that he's pursuing her that uh he ha- i mean like it's it's a it's a lost cause overall he feels like he's clawing his humanity back which you know i mean isn't what he's doing he's being horrific and he's going but he feels like the last uh vestiges of his humanity are, are stored within her and you can kind of metaphorically see that literally stored within her right like not yeah just that's a baby yeah a, a child but the fact that you know she's his last connection to the, mm-hmm. to the human world and he really wants to get back to that at the same time there's kind of this weird um i think you know looking at the concept of kind of evolution and uh almost reconciling that with the concept of religion like you know uh the, the the god almost like him kind of this this transcendent form you know the mother and the child does mm-hmm. conjure up those images of like christianity and like the you know 
the trifecta and the idea that kind of all of these like these three figures reconciled into one which isn't something that makes any fucking sense when you hear it in like church or whatever and they're like oh three people in one but like you kind of do see it in this i didn't think about this until we started kind of having this conversation but like it is the three figures like he's trying to create the idea one he's trying to create the you know god and 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 you know the mother and the child all in kind of this one form and creating some kind of weird uh the, the same way that i kind of assumed it was as a kid when i was like when they're like oh there's you know the three figures in one i'm like what like all fucking transform into the same thing like what, what are you guys talking about there was there was like a series of tweets going around where they were uh, visually creating what angels would look like uh, based on their biblical descriptions. I don't know if you saw that. Like there were like a whole bunch of eyes and like wings and all of that. No, angels yeah. like the the. I mean the parts. I mean I read Genesis and I read j- different parts of the Bible like to see if I ever could. It was boring as fuck. I don't know why everyone was into that book for so long. It's the best selling book of all time. Motherfuckers, have you read it? It's so boring. Like, there's whole chapters that are just names. But anyway, I tried to read a bunch of it, and it does make angels kind of sound terrifying at parts of it. Yeah. And, like, not 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 like something you want. Like, they're like, wow, the light comes down, and this weird fucking creature, <laughs> like, nah, get the fuck away from yeah, it's not um, like the it's not like the TV show Lucifer. I don't know if you've seen it, but <laughs> it's it's like they, they kind of glamorize the, uh, the look of angels and demons and all of that. So this is before the alien story clip um because i do want to end it at two hours um this is a bunch of just behind the scenes footage that i found where they're just kind of playing around on set and it's weird what movies you can find this with and what movies they think to do this with and then what movies are kind of uh you know left to not do this because like you know we were talking about um death to smoochie they had so much the other day and then this movie they have a bunch of different clips of them filming it but then some movies you can find nothing maybe this dvd thing i don't know couldn't find anything on the fly, too. Okay, stand by, ready, and fire. Actors Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis didn't know what to expect when they learned that they would be working with the internationally acclaimed horror filmmaker, David Cronenberg. I got the idea that uh, that he was uh, had a kind of a, 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 a personal uh, interest in and vision for these uh, weird and uh, bizarre and uh, horrible uh, stories. People ask what he's like because he's made these kind of gory films <laughs> and they think, wow, is he just crazy or, or a weird guy or what? But he's, he, he's very, he's the opposite of what you might think he'd be like very calm and laid back and uh, like a nice regular guy this nice regular guy likes to scare audiences to death as director and writer of such films as scanners and the dead zone he has tried to terrify moviegoers by exploiting their deepest fears in videodrome his stylized horror produced some surrealistic effects I've done films that are primarily action, like Scanners. And I've done films that are primarily character, like The Dead Zone. And I've done films that are very, uh, very much, go very quite deeply into special effects that have never been done before, like Videodrome. And I think in The Fly, all of these things are combined. 
now, for the first time in his career, Cronenberg has directed a picture that is not based on one of his original ideas, a remake of the horror classic, The Fly. Ironically enough, I think that the things that people will say are very Cronenberg when they see the film are in fact the things that were, were in the script that I was given. That was one of the great shocks, pleasant shocks that I had when I read this script. There were details of this transformation of the main character, which felt like things that I could have written myself. Oh no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? Action! Cronenberg has been working in the horror genre for over a decade. Through the years, he has gained the confidence and security as a director to give his actors a great deal of creative freedom. I admire him. He's very strong. He's uh, because he knows what he wants. And there were there were times when he'd say, no, this is this is what I want. And there were times when he was very open and saying uh, that. So it was a real kind of collaboration that was very uh, satisfying. For Gina Davis, Cronenberg created a complex character not anything like the hysterical horror heroines of the past. There must be something we can do, you know, somebody we can go to, tests that can be done. No! Um, I won't be just another tumorous bore. Well, then what do you want me to do? Why did you call me? David Cronenberg teased me about that, too. He would call me the girl. He'd say, get the girl. Let's do the girl shot now. Because because in a lot of those films, it is the girl. You need, like, the girl who comes in and goes, ah! and screams and uh, you need a, just a good screamer and somebody can kind of look good and one of the things that i like about making movies is the surprises that that, that come up i think that at first someone walking into the film and not knowing what it was about would really be quite surprised to see what direction it starts to develop in <laughs> After that, I think probably lunch. Nice. He's, he's just like he is on Star Trek. <laughs> Which I, I don't I, know what his character's name is. It's just David Cronenberg. That's, you know. I, I liked uh, in Rick and Morty when they did like the Cronenberg episode or whatever. And they have, it's during the uh, show me what you got. That whole. <laughs> never like, watched it. You never watched it, Rick and Morty? No. And, it's funny that like uh, Cronenberg uh, speaks and like behaves, not the older one, the younger one, uh, almost like the the video, the handicap guy from uh, the camcorder guy from uh, what's American Beauty, uh, who videotapes the plastic bag. Like he does definitely give that vibe. Um, he's very functional and he's normal and all of that, but he's also like you know got this thing. He's Possessor. fully embraced his dark Amazing. side. Sorry. Possessor. His film Possessor. No, I haven't seen Possessive. Yeah, it's it's uh, Cronenberg's son's uh, film. Cronenberg's son. Yes. Son of Cronenberg. Son of Cronenberg, Possessor. <laughs> the uh, that's who you're talking about, right? The younger Cronenberg. No, 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 no. I'm talking about just no, <laughs> just you, the no, younger, like in this, the younger Cronenberg. Oh, sorry. Yeah, in this <laughs> clip, yeah, yeah. No, the older Cronenberg seems to be a very measured, uh, you know, more more than uh, yeah, weirdly so normal. Like, yeah. Like very, uh, very like a, a sarcastic, like almost uh, like 
science teacher or something like yeah yeah yeah, like, yeah. like on star trek <laughs> i've, I've but, watched the star trek where, where he's in that oh yeah he, he's a character on discovery he's he's uh, been in the past two seasons is just showing up every once in a while as david cronenberg is amazing so to watch him go um because you know he's he's not playing anybody he's just you know the year 3000 there's david cronenberg like there is <laughs> but he's but he's also like kind of fully embraced the the weirdness aspect of him which which kind of like feels healthy like uh he's very well spoken and uh you know he's calm and measured and like as Gina davis describes him um as a guy who you know he's just like an average guy uh but he still got all of these you know weird aspects of him and like I mean, it's a nice contrast with jeff goldblum because jeff goldblum all of these things like show up on the surface but in cronenberg you kind of don't see that it's it's like it's in there but you know he doesn't need to like actually or he doesn't feel the the urge to outwardly portray the thing that's going on in his head which is probably 10 times more fucked up than anything you know that well, occurs to jeff goldblum kind of- the idea that we had at the beginning of this about like manufacturing genius like you know when you're kind of trying to prove yourself too much and you kind of manufacture this image as this you know crazy fucked up person in your head and then you kind of portray that it's a very different thing than there are some very normal seeming slash normal looking uh directors that kind of have that you, you can tell something's going in so a bunch of stuff is going on in their mind but that doesn't outwardly show on them. And I feel like a lot of that is whether you're a showman or not. Like it doesn't really have to do with how good you are at, at these different um, parts of this process. It really does have to do with, uh, you know, whether whether you're trying to show people that you are or whether you're kind of trying to do a showman's thing. Because, you know, the, the best suspense director of all time, like Hitchcock. Hitchcock, yeah. Yeah. The very boring sounding guy, right? Like, yeah. But at the same uh, time, like he wanted to make sure that people knew that, you know, he put himself in his cast himself in his own uh, ads every single time explaining it. And he kind of had this um, like the way that he portrayed himself was like very, uh, I mean, I guess suspicious, but like he kind of did it in a way that's like, Oh, I'm kind of macabre. Like I might be a normal guy, but I also have this macabre side to me, but you could, I mean, you could have probably assumed that and he, he did. did, he did, but you could probably assume that, you know, uh, like when he's just kind of hanging out, he probably wasn't, trying to portray that the same way that he would be on camera. And it seems like David Cronenberg isn't trying to portray anything on camera. He's just like, I've created this stuff. Look at the, like, if you, if you yeah. like it, you like it. But at the same time, it's interesting also to, uh, you know, see the, see Seth Brendel's character as the, um, I mean, it's, it's impossible not to, uh, but not just as the portrayal of uh, digital age genius or uh, the manufactured uh, kind of genius, but, but also a reflection of what an auteur is. Uh, mm-hmm. because it is, a, it is a film made by one and uh, and he does like have full control over his uh, you know inventions and uh, he's eccentric and he has like this um, you know person helping helping him out and it's also interesting that she films him as he's doing it um, he's both he's shy in front of the camera but uh, you know behind the scenes like he's extremely uh, thrifty and uh, he makes things work um, he solves problems and and stuff like that uh, which could again like uh, be the sort of you know um, downfall of uh, neoliberalism where uh, you're you're so you know caught up with the consultant mindset that the director becomes nothing more than a person assembling a bunch of pieces together and that's that's it that's the movie 
um like a, a studio tells you put these five things together and the director is just like a, a lackey who's supposed to you know make that happen and uh, like talked about a lot recently i think i mean you know if you really go um all right well reviewing antiviral i haven't i haven't seen it but i'll i'll, I'll check it out um like i found out that uh barry jenkins is making a disney movie apparently yeah, like I just, after I just saw, he's making a, a pre-line Lion King. King. And then yeah. they, they photographed him in bisexual lighting, like pretty much. So I said, uh, I said, Scar has to be, you know, filmed in bisexual lighting. Right. But, yeah. And, and, and it's today, like, today Jake Flores said the office was filmed in heterosexual lighting. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the... That was hilarious. <laughs> but, but that's the thing, right? Like you, you kind of have uh, these, these guys, basically it's, it's once the studios take over, like the, uh, the audio is kind of like the last uh, sort of frontier, the, the last like line of defense for uh, creativity, uh, which this is, is how not we, fully... Uh, this is how we drove um, uh, Marcus and, and Dick Warlock away that one episode by just getting really into Auteur Theory. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like in a way... Trying to fall. And I was, but I guess like that was maybe because it was Tropic Thunder that we were getting into. Uh, but either way, I feel like, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the case of... Uh, this movie it makes sense to talk about it because the, the yeah. central character is like a is it's a one man show um and it and, is as auteur theory is kind of falling apart um yeah like as the kind of i mean because there becomes this this moment where when this movie is kind of coming out where um people are doing for the next like decade people are doing the, the the kevin smith or like spike lee thing where they go to a um or richard linkladder like they go to mm-hmm. a big place where they can like distribute their films and because all of a sudden um becomes you know remarkably cheap to make them mm-hmm. there's people that are just waiting to kind of distribute them studios aren't quite lining up to i mean with some films they are but like they're not quite lining up to uh you know like miramax miramax and you know you know can't mention his name because uh mm-hmm. he's canceled but you know the wine the weinstein the weinstein yeah i yeah. <laughs> just canceled um the wine stinks. <laughs> yeah See, that's why I don't like the word cancel because cancel can mean everything from like, oh no, you're in prison to like, to to like, oh, you made a, a joke people didn't like. So now, like, or suicided, yeah, as well. That could be canceled as well. Jeffrey Epstein, cancel culture got him. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but like, so it, it's kind of fascinating, right? Like, there's this moment that opens up. It's no longer the auteur theory, I think, because um, I would take someone like Coppola or something and like his uh, full, full blown, uh, like, you know, his idea of kind of creating the studio system or whatever um, is entirely different from the distributor uh, culture that comes up in the 80s and 90s, which isn't quite an auteur theory, but also isn't quite, um, you know, it's not the studio. Like, the studio system's reemerged now. Yeah, and Cronenberg, think- remember at this time, too, this uh, The Fly was his first studio film. Um, everything else he did was was independently created. Um, hmm. uh, the, the you know um, he was he was a director of photography on Total Recall. Uh, okay. No, I I'm saying like because he was talking about how he was working on Total Recall. No, he He's was going to direct. Right? He was going to write and direct Total Recall. Uh, that became the Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Uh, yeah. The mutants on the the uh, on Mars. That was like a, a one of those leftover things from the Cronenberg uh, version of the film. Oh yeah, we did talk about that. No, yeah. the reason that I was the reason that I was trying to remember what the connection. I mean, I knew that he worked on it, but the, I was trying to remember. They had him like literally looking into the camera on this documentary, and I was like, 
Was he the deep? Like, I feel like maybe he wasn't. I don't know. No, so no, he, he was going to make his own stuff. version. Um, I think Tom Selleck was supposed to star in it or something like that. Um, it was going to be weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the. Um, yeah, it ended up being a little weird, but you know. Yeah, it just, it just never, it never worked out. And then uh, Schwarzenegger made the version that we got um, that was, you know, um, a generation later. Uh, you know, with, yeah, that uh, was 95. No, 1990. Oh, 90. Uh, yeah. My, my, I've watched way too many movies and like since then, but I really, I liked watching Total Recall. Yeah. The um, but, but no, Cronenberg, um, you know, was, was working in the, uh, you know, was making films in Canada, which has its own weird system, uh, because, uh, a lot of Canadian films in that, that time period where he came up was a way for, basically like um, uh, doctors to um, money launder, essentially uh, like basically tax avoidance schemes was to invest in a movie. The movie would be a flop. Um, and then they would be able to write off all this, this money. And, mm -hmm. and doctor, did a doctor say you can make more money with a flop than with a hit? And then pretty much. And then like, like Porky's became a hit. Sounds, so like, very, Mel, sounds very Mel Brooks. <laughs> And this is this is the the system that that Cronenberg uh, kind of came out of. Um, yeah, and I and I sent you guys that clip, and you know I didn't I didn't download it onto my computer, it's on my hard drive. But there's the clip of Cronenberg uh, talking about the studio system within like Ontario, and it's pretty much that if a movie is rated X and you don't cut out what they 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 take it, they cut it, and you can have your original print of the movie. But like if you play it within that uh, province, they will throw you in jail for two years and confiscate it. And wow. it's, it's more than just they're like it kind of is uh it kind of puts it into real perspective. They're talking about um the MPAA and like the idea that like oh well we can kind of just stamp a thing where like you can make a movie rated X and you can't play it in like a major theater like we have deals with them, but it's not censorship in the same way that like literally cutting your film and then saying listen you get two years in jail if we catch you playing this anywhere is full blown censorship. So there's a whole thing about uh, Cronenberg saying listen I'm extremely I feel extremely lucky that I'm in, like that my films are distributed in America where it's not that it's like, you know, they can stamp something on it and then theaters will or will not play it and, you know, let certain people in. That's not like jail time. And in Canada at the time where he was living, it was jail time, two years. Mm. Like that's an insane amount of time just to be like, well, I played my movie at an independent cinema. And if you want to know more about this whole history of Canadian uh, cinema too, there's a great podcast about a call. Um, uh, which did one episode. Uh, I don't remember what the episode's called, but the show was, um, oh, I just blanked on the name of the show. It's one of the Canada Land series of podcasts. It's their art show that they don't produce anymore. Um, uh, and I, I'm completely blanking on what the uh, what, what what the name of that particular show is, but but it's it's a worth a listen to, um, to, to, to if you want to learn more about that. All right. Um, so I'm going to play this. We don't have the letterbox one-liners. Conan's not on. But uh, I'm going to play this. This is the alien story that Cronenberg tells about how he thinks that he was ripped off by alien. And he, there, was a, there was a movie plotted out. I don't know if The Fly 2 is this, but there, there was a, a Fly 2 that was kind of ripping off aliens that they were going to be dicks about and kind of release because Cronenberg... There, there were many Fly 2s. So, you know, just... Yeah. They're, they're Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan was going to make one. Um, so I want to play this clip and then I want to, um, Andy, you can do your, your spiel about the, uh, you know, 
where, where to find us and everything. And then um, I want to talk for a second about uh, the final form of, of Brundlefly and then I'll go to final thoughts. So um, this is the, the alien clip. Um, I just have to tell you one slightly funny story that has something to do with this. It, it, it did amuse me. Some, some young filmmakers, some young students, I think, saw uh, my movie Shivers which was a movie made in 1975, um, which was uh, which kind of was a groundbreaking horror film that, that had a lot of influence and repercussions. It was kind of ripped off for the movie Alien, for example. And uh, not that I would ever say that, but, uh, uh, but it did have a parasite that burns its way out of your body and jumps onto your face and goes down into your body and reproduces, but not, you know, Alien, it was an accident that they came up with the same thing uh, two years later. Anyway, um, these kids were watching my movie and they said, you really nailed the 70s in that movie. <laughs> and I said, it was the 70s, <laughs> you know. I mean, it, it, and now it seems like... The fly really nailed the 80s too, I just want to say. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I found that I found that uh, definitely the hair. The hairstyle was like very eighties. Yeah, that mullet man. Nobody could rock a mullet like uh, Gina Davis. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna um, say Jeff Goldblum, and a uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, mullet one stop. I was gonna say uh, 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 Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> All right, Andy, let's let's hear it. Let's hear the. Uh... All right, if you're watching us right now on uh, Twitch. Make sure you hit the subscribe button if you can. That helps us out tremendously. If you are an Only Amazon, more Doug Lane emotes. <laughs> if you are uh, already an Amazon Plus subscriber, uh, like I'm sorry, Amazon, Amazon, Prime. Prime. Amazon Prime. Sorry, Amazon Prime member, you can subscribe for free, and that that still helps us out. So please do that. If you're watching us over on YouTube, hit the bell, hit subscribe, do all those YouTube things. Comment. We like to hear your comments. Um, uh, who knows? Maybe I'm one day I'll actually I'm respond to something. Of comments. Comments. No, not always. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, co comment does help. Play the video to the end because that also helps, you know, movie fans find our movies, uh, find, find our videos. So so that's a good thing to do, too. And um, we have a Patreon. Patreon.com is a great way to support us. Um, you get bonus features such as um, after parties. Uh, next after party, I think we're doing it for um, Heavenly Creatures. And, uh, you, you know, there's going to, we, we want to do more goodies for you, but uh, we need more patrons so we can feel, you know, feel the, the, the burning loins to, to make more, more stuff, to make more, to more, more product for you to snort. I mean, more content for you to consume. <laughs> yeah. All right. That is a a, a a good rendition. You guys see that clip of Trump talking about uh, YMCA and calling it the gay national anthem? <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> Doesn't he dance to it, though? He danced no, he to it. Out, he goes, yeah, but he, he he's, he's talking about how much he likes playing YMCA and how everybody loves it. And he goes, they call it the gay national anthem. The gay <laughs> And he's like, have you guys heard? He's talking to some like kid. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll find this real quick. But um, yeah, so I want to talk about the last iteration of uh, Brundlefly. 
really like the most terrifying part of it, right? He kind of turns into the full fly. And I, you know, I wasn't thinking about this until this conversation, but it is kind of fascinating that he's trying to hold on to his humanity. I did think about that part, but I wasn't thinking about like, what if he had kind of just embraced it? What if he had decided this is evolution? And like, you know, I've kind of, um, because I, you know, throughout genetically modifying things, right? It's something that we kind of do without thinking about it or consume without thinking about it. Um, that's why Janine Garofalo, I guess, got kicked off a majority report for questioning whether we should do that. But, um, you know, we kind of do that without thinking about it. But what happens if, if that is the next stage of evolution, right? Like what happens if evolution is not that it stops, but like we figured out how to uh, push that forward. And that kind of is our, our, our next, I mean, you know, our faded next step to this. And the fact that um, Jeff Goldblum's character seems able to reconcile that maybe this is the next iteration and he's terrified to get the, to that point um, or to change these things kind of, uh, ends up hindering him more than anything. Yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking about how uh, you were kind of uh, pretty close to uh, the Icarus myth as well, because um, the the concept of the fly, um, and it, and it's interesting how he's not able to fly even when he becomes the fly, uh, which is kind of fascinating because that shows that he uh, he has not yet reached the levels, or maybe he never will reach the levels where he can actually become the fly. So he's kind of cut, stuck in a in a mid at a mid midway point. So the only way for him to go is to you know, like mercifully be killed uh, by the person that uh, you know wishes the best for him and loves him. Um, I thought that, that was like one of the most moving scenes. Um, like I have uh, seen a monster be in uh, because it's usually like kind of a tearjerker. But like there was a one scene where the monster takes the gun. Like the fly, you know, holds the barrel of the gun and it just like slowly pulls it up to its head. Um, I didn't anticipate that. I thought that the fly was like gonna, you know, try to break the the barrel or something like that, like tie it into a knot or something, like Batman does. Uh, but but it kind of actually, uh, no, Batman doesn't tie it into a knot. Superman? He just bends it. You mean no, Superman? no, no. Ba- Batman does. Batman bend doesn't it. have super strength, bro. He's. I know he doesn't, but like in 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 the new movie, he does. He bends the. He bends. Oh, you're the, gonna spoil right? a movie I haven't seen yet. No, 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 no. Uh, then not the new movie, the the Christopher Nolan one. He actually, um, I forget which one it was in. I think it was the Dark Knight. Uh, he actually bends a uh, the 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 barrel of a gun, like a a, sh- a shotgun. I forget uh, what context it was, but he definitely does. Like, I'll, I'll, like, you know, next time I'm on, I'll probably like have this for you guys. But either okay. way, the the idea is that, like, you know, that it actually. I thought that it was gonna do something to hurt her, but uh, the creature pulls the gun to its head and says, "Shoot me!" And it doesn't actually I don't, say I don't, anything because he can't speak at that point. Yeah, he yeah. can't speak, and and it's and it's so it's so fascinating that like Which that that was actually such a moving the, moment. The original, I mean, this is the where the original movie ends is that uh, there's the person that like the you know the guy's turned himself into a fly and he's yelling "Help me, help me!" and his head is on the fly body and there's a spider. Which is why the the trailer ends with "Help me, help me." Hmm, if hmm, you remember hmm. going back to that, is that that's such a uh, so iconic. I remember going to a sci-fi convention. They had these giant fans because it was in a gymnasium. It was a hot day. And Fabian Nicieza is running, you know, runs up to one of the fans and just goes, Scott! And has his voice all distorted through the fan. Help me! 
but go on. I'm sorry. And that, that kind of traumatized people at the time because they weren't used to seeing, uh, you know, or they didn't expect to see that. You know, they didn't expect to see. And then the guy bludgeons both the spider that's because there's a spider over him. And I mean, in this in this case, I think um, he ends up being helpless at, at, at the end because he's been kind of uh, transformed into like the half machine. machine half, yeah. Yeah. Half uh, Brundle fly. But, you know, in this movie, he's just a tiny fly and he's transformed himself to a fly. And there's a giant spider over him and they're watching the spider descend and slowly like get ready to devour him and kill both. And, hmm. you know, so it's kind of it's kind of a fascinating um, look into this. Anyway, here is um, so good. <laughs> oh, God. That's a rocking. YMCA. <laughs> YMCA is a track. It's an underrated know, track. Do you know, is it an underrated? I think so. Well, it gets a lot of views, I can say. But YMCA, uh, the Gay National Anthem. Did you ever hear that? They call it the Gay National Anthem. But YMCA gets people up and it gets them moving. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of good selections and people love it when I do it. What's Yeah, he was also dancing around to Macho Macho Man, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, which I would think is more of a gay national anthem. I don't know why I'm serious, <laughs> is what it is, but like, <laughs> we love it. Don't we love, we love our dancing queens. We love them. <laughs> wow. Oh, man, that, that was, I forget, you know, I remember that as soon as you said something. It's like, yes, yes, that was amazing. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, he, and he was doing this much. Like, he was, he, yeah, he was like, like yeah, <laughs> it was almost like when Homer Simpson had that giant taco, you know, the, the nacho, giant, the giant nacho, nacho, nacho man. Yeah, he's like dipping the nachos into the. the um, so so yeah, I so I think I think this this entire uh, thing is is fascinating because he's kind of you know upset that all of these parts of him are falling off, and that is how transformation works. Like transformation is not you go through a. Uh, you know, a telepod and all of a sudden you transform into a full fly, he's evolving over time. And I think within the insect world, I mean, you see it in, in a bunch of different places. You see it with like caterpillars turning into, you can kind of think of the form of falling apart as either the cocoon or, I mean, they kind of make it explicit with kind of a maggot being birthed in her dream from her. Mm -hmm. And that is like the, the first, it's really right. disgusting that's right. where flies come from because they don't get any better from there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it is, but it is this kind of transformation you could think of um you could think of brundlefly as the maggot that you know is, is nothing like the actual fly it doesn't have wings doesn't have whatever things are falling off of it and then it, it expands from that like a cocoon almost and the old parts of it falls away and there's a there's a yeah, well maggots the, the fly does kind of climb out of the maggot it's really yeah gross no and it eats its way, it kind of eats its way out almost and, and like yeah. so you can think of that it within this and i was kind of i mean I, I obviously was really 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 disgusted by him breaking the arm and also you see his nails he's taking them off and he's trying yeah. to cover his body and his body is falling apart his teeth come out you know like it's all of these really just his body is falling away the same way that really a, a maggot would kind of fall away as a fly pushes his way out of it and becomes a full thing but then you see the the final form when he's kind of subjected to stuff and all of a sudden all of it kind of comes through and he's like full fly. And you have to wonder like in some ways, like what if he had known that that was the final outcome? What if he had fused man and fly and like become kind of this uh, starship troopers type 
uh, almost like, you know, terrifying creature. Like, and that is the final form. That is the, the fusion, which it's funny that when man fuses with machine, it becomes, or Brundlefly fuses with machine anyway, it becomes this like weird, pathetic, clawing thing. But like, you know, going full, like it's almost, um, it's like impressive. Like he's, he's like a, a six foot tall fly that is like, terrifying and ready to bear down on stuff and if he wasn't continually trying to throw her into the the, the one telepod because that that's not that has nothing to do with him being a fly that has to do with him trying to return to his sense of humanity like what if he had just gone embraced the fly part of it and it's the opposite of what the original uh thing where it's just a guy's head on a fly that's like really pathetic and eaten by a spider it is this incredibly impressive thing and then the fact that he gets you know uh combined with the machine is what makes him pathetic. It's not that he's, it's not the, the, the final form that he puts himself in is pathetic. And I haven't watched the whole Vincent Price one, but I definitely, I've seen, I've seen the help me, help me on multiple occasions in different places. And like, I don't know, I, I just, I kind of find it interesting. And I kind of find um, like the concept of like evolution. Well, obviously that's interesting, but like the concept of evolution kind of uh, technologically pushed forward by man and then man realizing like, maybe I don't want this. Maybe this is something scientifically, um, uh, that I can't predict. Like I want something that I can predict. I want something that I know that this is what I'm going to end up as. And you know, that's not how science has ever worked. Science works over time. And if you speed up the timeline, because you're Jeff Goldblum and everything speeded up, <laughs> like if you speed up the timeline, it's probably horrifying. And you you have to wait to the end of it. That's not like these things don't work that way. Like you push out of the the maggot form of uh, you know falling apart Jeff Goldblum into something else. And he's not willing to put in that patience. He wants to go back and a caterpillar can't go back into the cocoon. But also I don't, I don't necessarily think that like he can actually succeed in the endeavor of uh, embracing the fly because he does try to do that. You know, you know, like in the, in the beginning, he, he's totally like when he's drunk with power and stuff like that, he's totally on board with it. Like he even goes yeah, because and all the breaks part. Yeah, he breaks the guy's arm and like he br- he picks up the new girl and like he brings her back and stuff like that and it's like it's kind of exhilarating for him. Uh, but I I mean, which but, is but one that... of my favorite lines too in the movie. Whenever she's like, "Yeah, let's go to your place. Uh, I live with my mom." And then like when Gina Davis shows up, <laughs> I want you to meet my mom. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean like of course you can embrace the the parts that uh, complete you, right? Like you want you want to be that that person that's. Uh, uh, fully, fully, fully realized. <laughs> it's fully realized in the sense of like you want to be better at sex. You want to fully embrace your your body and understand your, your like your flexibility. You don't want the parts of you where it's falling off and you're transforming. But you don't right. get to choose those things. You you you're in the process of transformation. And in the process of transformation, just on an emotional and like looking at this movie because I think metaphorically it is an emotional and spiritual transformation rather than kind of being an actual transformation mm-hmm. he's, un- he's unable to transform into his like final metaphorical form and you mm-hmm. know we, there is the the clip of Cronenberg that we watched where he says that like you, you have to always um put this into a physical context these can't be abstract concepts he does a pretty good yeah. job of creating abstract um uh you know baboon soup or whatever but you know but besides that <laughs> you that was a great to- scene yeah yeah when the baboon uh, bangs on the window, like he's he's that's trying so to see if terrifying. the baboon survived. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, pretty terrifying. Yeah. And then you expect it the second time, and it actually survives, and you're like, oh my god, holy shit, thank god, I don't want to see another fucking baboon in that position. 
But the thing is that baboons, I'm going uh, Jeff Goldblum again. Baboons are human enough that it like the handprint looks like a human handprint. It's mm. a primate. It has the same five fingers. It's more like us than even the Simpsons are. Like, <laughs> like you know what I mean? So you see, like it's almost like a human print. It's not quite human. You would think that maybe the transformation of a baboon would be to a human. That's the same evolution, but it isn't in this case. It's been fried into you know. But they are still like the closest, I mean, one of the closest things to us. And um, in the same way, though, we are unable to process the transformation of ourselves. We are unable to kind of think of what the next iteration of our own um, self transformation and evolution is. And we're terrified of it in the same way that probably a baboon would be terrified if he turned, you know, if he was sent into a machine and then all of a sudden became the first human. Um, <laughs> the baboon parts of themselves started to be lost. Like this, you know. But the other thing is the fly is the most primitive thing you can really think of. Um, I, like, or at least a maggot is. I've seen maggots and been fucking disgusted by them. And also, the cockroach was taken. So you can't, you can't make a movie called The Cockroach. It's Kafka-esque. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but like within that process of transformation, though, you know, you're both fusing yourself with that primitive, uh, the primitive side, the insect side. And I do love that we're in this weird fucking terrifying time period because he goes, insects don't have politics in my brain. I'm like, well, I wish I was a fucking insect then <laughs> because I'm tired of being afraid that we're going to get nuked. But, you know, like, yeah. But ants have a have politics, obviously, because there's a queen. Yeah. You're a monarch. Ah, queen. <laughs> Clear hierarchy and stuff. <laughs> I mean, don't say this to Jordan Peterson. He's going to get upset that like you don't you don't think that there's hierarchy and politics in the natural world and lobsters let's hear about fuck let's hear about fucking lobsters huh um, um yeah i gotta i gotta kind of end it here um you know i want to hear final thoughts though quickly karthik let's hear some final thoughts i think you kind of convinced me uh by the end that like um the that the fly is not necessarily the cause of his demise, but his uh, rejection of the fly. Because, like, the, the fly is actually a pretty superhuman character. It's just that he doesn't want to be that anymore. He wants to become human, which kind of ultimately leads to his downfall. Like, he doesn't want to fly all the way to the sun. Um, but but that's kind of... Fa- that, you can only stick his... Yeah. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, and I think that, like, kind of... Um, I, I'll, like, stick to the, my original kind of conception of this as like a sort of metaphor for the relationship and like the idea of self-sabotage that like the relationship requires him to transform and he's not up to the task because uh he it's it's unfamiliar to him um he's he's scared of being vulnerable she doesn't want to transform with him too which is yeah yeah Yeah. but that's okay I, i feel like she's still you know willing to be with him uh even if she's not exactly doing what he wants her to do and he's somehow well, unable to... Like, what I'm saying is that transformation that he goes through, the only way that he can really process it and, and be comfortable with it is he, he needs to have both worlds, right? Like, he needs to go through that transformation, but also have her follow him into that machine. Um, right. And she's, she's willing to stay with him, but she's not willing to follow him into that machine. Therefore, he's uncomfortable. He's in this both worlds thing where the only thing that's really tethering him to being a human is her, but also he doesn't... He's afraid to go through this by himself. But even, but even before he goes into the machine with himself, like he he does like toy with the idea of uh, her doing it as well. So it yeah. seems like th- they are separated or distinguished by the fact that she is not ready to do that and he is. 
um and something about that is like and she even like spits out the steak that she um that he serves her which is like the artificial meat she says it tastes synthetic uh so there is like a differentiation between the two but ultimately i i, I mean like i saw this as a very emotional movie which uh, i didn't anticipate i thought that it was going to be far far wackier than um it turned out to be it actually turned out to be almost like a greek tragedy almost where uh, like i mean i i i of course like i'm you know putting the card before the horse here and saying i've seen hollow man before uh, this one um and hollow man is like far more uh, you know fun in a way that it's like it's it's almost like a commercial film you know in that sense like it's not really like a, a work of art or it's it's not even trying to be that it's just trying to be like a a sort of action movie um but this one's like a dramatic film it's a dramatic feature it it centers a, a romance and uh in a, in a true sense like it's a love story that shows i mean like and, and again like i go back to the idea of chasing amy that this guy needs to ruin his relationship in order for him to like want it and that seems to be i think the the story of both the invention as well as the relationship in this case yeah um andy just some final thoughts. I gotta, I gotta be done with this in the next four minutes. So. <laughs> no problem. Um, I'll skip the Moxifruvis lyrics because, uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, no, this is this is an absolute uh, fun film. It, it really is kind of uh, one of Cronenberg's best, and Cronenberg has like a bunch of great films under his belt. Um, Dead Zone, uh, Scanners. I mean, I remember the first time I watched Scanners, I didn't know what I was even watching. I was growing bored of the movie and then some dude's head explodes and I'm like, I'm hooked, you know? So, um, uh, but, but like, uh, it was kind of known for up and I mean, up until the fly. Yeah. Well, I didn't even know what I was, I was, uh, turned on sci-fi channel and like, like I didn't know what was, I thought you said you were, you were turned on. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, okay, I'm watching this movie now. This guy's head exploded. That was awesome. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Uh, still is one of the coolest uh, movie scenes ever made. Um, but no, Cronenberg has made a bunch of phenomenal films. Um, and, and I think this is probably the, you know, like, like I think there's kind of two sections of his career, the, the early experimental stage. And then this is kind of a bridge that, that led us to history of violence and uh, Eastern promises. And, uh, you know, I hope we get some more Cronenberg. Uh, I don't, I'm unaware of uh, any on the horizon, but, um, you know, that's not to say we're not going to get any besides him being on Star Trek. All right. He also made Cosmopolis, I think, recently, right? After uh, Eastern Promises. That wasn't bad either. That was I feel like I don't like yeah. Robert Pattinson too much, but I don't think there's a bad uh Cronenberg film. I'm going to say that. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to cut it here. Um and for my final thoughts, I am going to say, have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion, no compromise. We can't trust the insect the insect I'd like to become the first insect politician.